recording, but the one saying that it's finished recording will be. Gotta love Zoom. Fuck Zoom. I mean, it's a great product. It works perfectly every time. I don't have anything against Zoom at all. But un- unless it turns out to be the reason that I have all these weird voice artifacts on my recordings where I'm reading for you, you might notice. Oh, yeah. New headphones. Uh, you re- may remember me complaining to you that I couldn't find a damn pair of headphones at the boom mic. I was in Office Depot yesterday wondering what can I do to change things up on the podcast to maybe see if we can figure out that. And what do I see in front of me on the, you know, a pair of headphones with a boom mic on the shelf? So I dropped 50 bucks and bought them. Fuck yeah. These things claim to have a 45 hour battery life. I was like, bullshit. We'll we'll test that. How the hell would they? (laughs) We'll test that. So, um, you mean, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I put the pants. Yeah, I put a couple of the hoodie designs on pants just to fuck with them. I did see that on your store. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I saw that you had the pants. Yeah. I I was going to wear the Area 51 shirt, uh, and I put it on this morning, and then I went and I mowed the yard. Got all sweaty and grassy. I did mention that I live in southern Louisiana, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you live in the. Yeah. So. You live down damn little swampy lands. It's yeah. I put so start, uh, I put, yeah. So your shirt's in the laundry hamper. Right I put a I put a lot of the designs on some uh, on some sweatpants, and I just ordered like eight of them. And I I ordered like two at no, I ordered them at medium, large, XL, and XXL. And I figured the, if they're the really big ones, I'll just use as like pajamas. And I just wanted to see like where they fall along. I don't I don't even know what size these ones are. But I mean, obviously I'm gonna be my own biggest fan. They're fucking great. <laughs> They're fucking fantastic, dude. I've been wearing them all day. They're absolutely fantastic. I look more and more like a jackass now that I've also got pants with pharaohs on them. Figure if I get matching ones I can I can pull off the uh the shitty uh rap look, right? Get a face tattoo and a styrofoam cup and I'll be Little, little TPC, and just hey. I walk around slurring my words and uh, with cough syrup on my breath. Tattoos will be a theme in today's reading. Should I get some body face, markings? Should I get some face tats? Well, you might want to hear it first. Okay. Well, um, yeah. everybody, episode four seventy eight with Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which will get its time in the spotlight one day. Will it be in our lifetimes? I don't know, but it will get its credit. The credit will come to it, and uh, just like every Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick is any indicator will probably be as I'm being lowered into my grave. Oh no, no, you will not be alive for it. That's you need to understand that you need to understand that now. You will not be alive. You chose the path. You chose the creative path where you get posthumous uh, recognition. Because I'm an egotistical fuck, I chose the podcast route where where you get it while you're alive. Yours is perhaps more noble in the long con. Mine is uh, short term gratification. Yours is like yours is the satisfaction from like a nice aged whiskey. Mine's like a crack cocaine hit in a parking lot in Harlem. <laughs> Like, I want it now, and I want it to be high and fast. And it is high and fast, but you'll come down and be in a subjective hell and scratch the skin off your face. 
that being said, go buy the book. I'll put it in the description. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. It's my favorite fucking book. Oh. I, I say it every time. It's my favorite book. You uh, well, I, and the thing is, it's about all of the things that I write. You did, you do make a really good point there about the way that I approach it, which is I want them to be right. I would rather them be right than popular. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and that applies to nothing more than the metamorphosis of prime intellect, which I knew after I finished the first chapter would probably never be published by a legitimate publisher because I had let it all hang out. But uh, when I reread it, it was like, no, that was, that was what the story required. Well, that's, that's why that was the correct way to do it. That's why I love it so much. I remember reading it the first time and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was just like, this is so, but it, it makes sense because ultimately if you, if, if you evaded death and could do whatever you want, you would go out into the fringes. It would, it would, it would, incredibly, you know, humans being humans, it would quickly turn up into an incredibly fucked up situation. A hundred percent. If no one could get hurt, no one could, you would have, I mean, look at video games. Like what, you know, in real life, in real life, we're like, you know, we're like, we have, we have rules of engagement. You know, there's even like gentlemanly battles. Like you don't fire upon like, but as soon as it turns into a video game, what do you do? You're teabagging where you're murdering everybody, squatting (laughs) your balls on the forehead of the guy you just killed because it's not real. So as soon as it turns into this suspended reality, humans, we have that 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 ability or curse to just take it to the most depraved corners of existence. Well, and then the thing that always struck me that was even hard for me to imagine about the following, you know, the the inter novel, you know, it's like because because that story is told in two sections, one which is contemporary although contemporary was in the eighties for that story and one 600 years in the future. But what about all the middle? It's like, what about people who were born into this situation? What's that like? It was very hard for me to even imagine that. And that was, you know, there's a a scene in chapter one where I kind of realized that the people who grew up facing death and then were, transported into this world where death was impossible would have a very different view of everything than people who were born into it and who never expected to face death. And that could be a meta meta metaphorical uh, commentary on, on maybe the greatest generation, right? Coming back, coming back from certain death to, I mean, we just, we just went past the 77th anniversary of D-Day to a life of milk and honey and then our my parents bringing it even further along to where i'm born in 1990 i mean i vaguely remember kind of like the early internet but i was also too young to know anything other than it but i mean by the time it was by the time Uh i was 10 2000 i mean it was just everything was yeah there's video games there's playstations there's i mean i was born into a into a cell phones yeah i was born into a world of I mean, really no concept of, of what is world war. And it's, mm-hmm. you, you could say, is what's the difference between me and a grandparent? Obviously you have the, these kids these days don't know what they have. And they're absolutely right. I have no idea what I have. Yeah. I'm, I am actually technically a baby boomer. I, 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 I like, am by some definitions, like two years into it, because I was born in 64. Okay. But I'm going to tell you that uh, when I was a kid, they were closing schools. The whole baby boom thing was winding down. 
So it's like there had been competition to get into the, you know, even like top high schools and stuff. And that was all winding down when I came along because there weren't as many kids as there had been. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and of course then things really changed, uh, starting in the eighties. Um, but yeah, it's, you wake up one day and it's like, so my, my childhood memories are of seeing the Vietnam war on the TV and that was so plainly senseless and stupid that it really is it's one of the reasons that to this day my politics lean to the left because mm-hmm. I saw it's like I didn't know why they were doing this. Actually, I have a pretty good idea today and it doesn't improve the situation. Yeah. But it was just like it was senseless. Yeah. It was stupid. It was a waste. Yeah. And why were they doing you know, it's, it's, so now when I see something that looks like a senseless, stupid waste, I'm inclined to call it out because it's it's an interesting No one was doing that in the sixties. Everyone was like pretending that this was a legitimate thing. And I'm I'm like, I'm ten years old and I can see this is not a legitimate thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting parallel to like to me growing up, where it's like grew up basically in right in like the age of the global war on G what G what global war. So you were, you were about that age when nine eleven. But that but that what I was going to say is and there's the mirror is whereas Vietnam it's like well what it's a domino theory about a form of economic distribution that we can't let happen in Southeast versus like me a kid who was obsessed with skyscrapers and you know has family in New York has been to had been to New York very very vague hazy memory of seeing the twin towers on the horizon on the skyline like i can see it in my mind's eye and then seeing like being in school and it being shut down and like you know just like you know us watching the news that night like whereas i wonderful thing that was there is not there anymore that's what i mean it's so like whereas i you could i mean maybe you could argue that's the that's the birth of my conservative roots right is it was a constant war like you with vietnam and me with this but for for mine there was uh, there at least seemed to be an action reaction hit counter and obviously i mean i even I would argue, no, there's no, this is now we're going to spiral off into a whole unnecessary episode. But even now I would agree. Yeah, no, what we're doing now is it's, we should have been finished by 2003 and the whole thing since then has been horseshit, but just an interesting parallel to where you can, yeah, it's the, there's one, there's at yeah. least the, there's at least. The, we keep doing this shit over and over again. And by the time you figured it out, there's a new generation that comes along that it's time to buy. And it just keeps going and the machine never stops. Military Industrial Complex 2024. Roger and I, were cutting out the middleman. Everyone <laughs> just, fuck it. We're just going to create a panel for the new presidents. It's just going to be. Nukes. It, it's Everybody gets a nuke. Nukes for everyone. Northrop Grumman. We're not even, we're getting rid of healthy human No middlemen. We're getting rid of the Secretary of the Interior. We're getting rid of everything. Mandatory enlistment. And we're going to bulldoze the world. And let, let's just fucking get out. Let's finish with the foreplay. And let's just go on and fuck the rest of the world. Because we've been playing with it for a century. Let's just do it. And at least we're being honest about and it. At least, and at least we're being honest. We're not gonna, we're not gonna be conservatives and say that this is for America. We're not gonna be far leftists and be like, "Don't worry, we're LGBTQ. We're gonna go bomb the Middle East." We're not gonna do either of that left and right bullshit. We're just gonna look you dead in the eyes and say, "We want the resources. Gonna die. We want, we want the resources, <laughs> and you're gonna die." And at least, at the very least, we'll look you in the eye and tell you what we're gonna do. 
I'm at looking the at myself least. in the video and it's like I should have the Joker makeup, you know. Yeah, like, you at, know? at the very least, <laughs> we're going to tell you exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> hey, we're going to get in office, do a false flag, and then just bulldoze the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and that was the thing about the Joker character in Batman was that he was honest about it. Yeah. And I'm tired of pretending like it's yeah. not, you know. You guys are really just yeah. going to admit to the world that we're going to rape it for its resources and, quote, burn the people alive? Yeah. And I'm tired like I'm tired of pretending that we're not going to do that. Yeah. You, you are going to like a lot of the stuff coming up on the curators. Beautiful. It's like um, <laughs> it's like that George Carlin bit where he's like, what's America do? Do we Which build one? VCRs? No. Do we build cars? No. Do we build anything? No. <laughs> Except bombs. We can brown. We can bomb the fuck out of brown people. If you've got brown people, tell them to watch goddamn out because we're coming. Have, when is the last time we bombed white people? Have we ever bombed white people? We have. Once. And it was the Germans. Why? Because they wanted to take over the world. Bullshit. That's our fucking job. <laughs> The only white people we've ever bombed are the ones that tried to do what we do. Ah, ah, motherfuckers. We run this. That's, that's our wheelhouse. That's, yeah, we're, we're there. Yeah. Oh, shit. That's our fucking job. <laughs> and that he was given that during, like, Desert Storm, saying it's another war. And, I mean, that was two wars ago yeah. now. Oh, I think he was doing that. I know he was doing it in the 90s. Yeah, I think that bit he was doing. Before was, we were even doing it. Well, he was, was doing, like, he was doing that bit because he was commenting on the the H.W. Bush presidency. And so you could see yeah. where it was like he wasn't even talking about the global war on terror. He was just, just like, a, oh, yeah. And by the time he figured well, yeah, out. Yeah. Well, you know, Bush the Smarter was actually a CIA guy. And, yeah, he was uh, the director of the CIA. So, uh, yeah. And, and the funny thing was they, they uh, the professional actor got term limited out. And the guy who was actually running things took his place, and he he couldn't maintain the popularity thing that the professional actor did, which is a, <laughs> so, which is a beautiful com, which is another beautiful narration on America. Yeah, and yeah, uh, it's like the whole thing has been just such a shit show for my entire life. I, yeah, you know, I, I, I I have to say, you know, it's like the last two presidents that I well. I have to say I had a lot of respect for uh, Barack Obama when he came in. But before him, it was like Nixon and Carter. Nixon was competent. He was a crook. He was an asshole. He was a, he was a lot of bad. He was a douchebag. But he was a douchebag who knew how to run the country. He is very similar to uh, Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards, who uh, – I voted for on the campaign when the slogan was vote for the crook. It's important because his opponent was David Duke. And the thing is about Edwards was, yes, he was crooked as the day is long. He was character, blah, blah. But he knew how to run the state because he knew that if he didn't run the state right, he wouldn't be able to get his cut. Mm -hmm. And if he wanted to get his cut, he had to run the state right. So he was competent. He was good for everybody, even though he was taking his taste out of it. Uh, and I tend to think of Nixon as kind of being the same way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing about Nixon is he ended the Vietnam War when he didn't have to. You know, he everyone was pressuring him to end the war before the election in 72 so that he could run on that. And he, he didn't do it. But then he did end the war after the election 
apparently because he finally realized what a shit show it was and a waste of life. And the man did actually have religious beliefs. And apparently something finally prevailed on him that he was just like, no, man, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. And I respected that. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people hated the fuck out of Richard Nixon, uh, particularly after Watergate and all that went down. Uh, But I had to say, I was like, even in the day, I had a certain amount of respect for him because he ended the war when he didn't have to. Mm -hmm. He didn't end the war when it was politically expedient. He ended the war because he had obviously finally had enough and mm-hmm. that was that was that and then of course he had you know who's gerald ford uh but then jimmy carter comes along and he is probably the most honest man who has ever held the office in the history of the united states but he couldn't play the game yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah so. it's, it's i i can't speak on nixon i i don't know enough about him that's just one of like the 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 blank spots in my i have random knowledge about random things but there is one interesting (laughs) thing i remember reading about the cold war and i don't remember it was some famous uh anchor not cronkite but it was another name that i'm I'm sure you would recognize and he talks about and he's a super liberal guy and he's like nixon he's like this guy is like evil incarnate he's a crook he's a blah blah whatever and he said he met him at like a dinner party after his presidency in like Manhattan or something, just really elite, you know, obviously Nixon's there. And mm-hmm. he was like, we went deep into the night and like our wives hit it or whatever. And it ended up, he's like, and of all people it ended up being me and Richard Nixon sitting on like a, like a balcony. <laughs> It'd be like if you and Trump ended up smoking a cigar together or some shit. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and here's this guy that I thought was the devil incarnate. And he goes, and I leave that yeah. dinner. He goes, Still thinking he was evil, but he goes, God damn it, if he wasn't competent. And it's like, yeah. hey, you know, it's, you know, it's, you, you got to give, what he was doing. you got to give credit yeah. where it's due. Apparently, Michael, Je- <laughs> Michael Jordan's a total asshole, but I mean, God damn, if I own a, if I own an NBA team, I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is, I, I had not heard that story before, but it, it, it rings true. Yeah. That goes into the unlikely friendships uh, story like uh, Larry Flint and Jerry Falwell. I saw a documentary about that two nights ago that was uh, uh, Larry Flint and the right to be left alone. Yeah. Um, it was made in 2008. Interesting. Uh, interesting time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the uh, the previous Larry Flint movie was uh, The People versus Larry Flint was a dramatization uh, where Woody Harrelson played Larry Flint. This was a documentary, which was assembled footage that featured the actual Larry Flint and the other people in his life. And it was it was interesting because you could actually hear the pain in his voice in 2008 when he was talking about his first wife, Althea, and uh, how she died. And uh, that obviously still left a hole in his heart all these years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so it's like even, you know, even, even the people that you think of as evil that, you know, Somewhere there, there's still people. Now, you got to wonder about something. It's like, I got to wonder about Mitch McConnell. It's like, is there actually a human there, underneath that reptilian a, skin? Is there a human? <laughs> yeah, it, it's one thing you always got to imagine. It's like, I always think, like last night, I had a weird dream that I was that I was talking about Alan Watts with Kamala Harris. We are sitting there, 
And she brought up something about Taoism. And I said a quote and she was like, Alan Watts. And I was like, correct. And we sat there just talking about Alan Watts and some of like the interesting facets of him. Now, granted, that's a dream and has no basis in reality. But I'd like to think that no matter who you sit down with, if you sat down with him, you'd probably be like, oh, this is a this is just a dude. Like, this is just a, a guy or a chick. Like, it's just this person, like, yeah. this person takes a hot shower, too. This person yeah, wakes we all, up. We all have the rest of our lives. Some of us, Leo, collect model trains or we have other little things like that. Yeah. That doesn't get into the press. Or yeah. so. Now, I'm sure there are also people, if you meet, you're just like, oh, wow, this person's just evil. <laughs> this person's just, yeah. like, I'm sure if you met Hitler, you wouldn't be like, you know, that's a guy. You'd be like, that's Satan. But I mean, you know, a lot of people. I've, 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 I've actually had the misfortune to know a couple of them. Yeah. And, but I bet, I bet a lot of people, if you met, they're just fucking, they're just people. Like, they're just, that's one thing I always think about is like, what if my dad became president? And it's a person who I've known for 30 years, and I would see them. But the rest of the world, this character would just be coming into their public consciousness, like an Obama or a Bill Clinton mm-hmm. or whatever. And there would be people that would champion him. And there'd be people that, that swore he was the end of the country. And, and you're this little person that about this tall on the sidelines watching it all. And happen. I'm watching it all. And I'd be like, and I'd be like, yeah, I agree with some of the points and I agree with the criticisms, but I'd be like, he, he's a great father. He's a fucking good person. He's a, and no one would give a shit. And I can only imagine mm-hmm. that, that Biden's son or Trump's son or, 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 or Michelle Obama or they're probably yeah. all just Obama, like Obama, the Obama's daughter. Oh yeah. 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 Malia. Yeah. It, one, one of them would be like, you know, he's a, he's a great dad, it, but like you can't see it. It's just that such a, mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing that we propel these people to these heights so that they have to become bigger than a father. They have to act as the face of a country. I don't know. Some people buy my fucking hoodies. That's the moral of the story. Yeah. Buy the- some 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 people grow into that. Yeah, I mean, very you know, unexpectedly, invisibly, and then some people um, don't. Yeah, Harry Truman, dude. Harry Truman truly like filled FDR's shoot. The man was in his fourth term. Harry Truman took over a guy that dug us out of the Great Depression headed yeah. or spearheaded the funding for the atomic bomb and was meeting with Stalin and was leading Eisenhower and Harry Truman just like yuck just walked on in and the motherfucker grew into those shoes and ran shit. Yeah. And, and he didn't even know about the Manhattan Project. And 13, the bomb. He didn't even know about it until 13 days after becoming the president. Yeah. And then he finds out about this shit that's been going on that he didn't even know about that, you know, and He's, you know, but he stepped up. Yeah. So that's a good is maybe he stepped up in two ways. You know, the first was, all right, we went ahead and dropped the first and second bombs. But then in another way, he stepped up and said, uh, no, uh, the third one's going to be ready soon, but we're not dropping it because I don't want to kill all those kids. Yeah. Quote, quote, I can't kill all those children. I mean, maybe that's so. a thing. Maybe that, maybe by putting it at that, like, kind of that deified chair that it is, the Oval Office, maybe you force people to become bigger than they are. Maybe it's not meant yeah. for people that go, you know what? I'm a good father. It's like, congratulations. Then go be a father. 
like don't don't be yeah. the president you know maybe it's, well if it didn't work for one guy I yeah <laughs> yeah so well, exactly but that's the thing is maybe putting it at that level is maybe it's good yeah. it's you know it's it's bad when a when a kid it's, becomes well it's a thing that humans have done over and over uh for the last few thousands of years and it's a thing that has reliably driven some people crazy yeah well, so, well that's that's the thing yeah no it's it's a tightrope yeah. So it's 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 one of those things that's extraordinary about us is that uh, we we create this situation and some of us rise to it. And of course, some of us are destroyed by it. And some of us do both. I mean, that's, uh, you know, evolution didn't prepare us to be the ruling leader of 100 million people. Yeah, there's there's no there's no preparation, man. I look back at I look at this podcast and I just go back a year, and I can like barely recognize myself. Just the things I'm saying and how I'm carrying myself. I mean, a lot of it's still me, but a lot of it I look at it and I'm like, huh? And just and I know in six more months I'll be looking back at this episode and be like, eh, I don't know, man. Now imagine that's one hour a day of me putting out what I want to put out. Imagine mm-hmm. you got cameras on you 24 hours a day, not in yep. your best moments. Oh, I saw another documentary this week called The Final Year, which was about President Obama's final year in office. And the blurbs called it like a real life West Wing, uh, which it kind of was. And it was uh really well done uh you would probably get a lot of enjoyment out of it and uh you know because this is stuff that you would remember too and the thing is is a lot of the background uh players uh the the stuff going on how they were trying so hard to deal with different situations in the world and then of course when trump won the election it was like all the air got let out of them uh, for at least a few days as they realized that all of the work that they were doing probably was not going to be continued beyond the end of the term. Um, but then they they just doubled down their efforts to get as much as they could done while they could. Uh, it was uh, one of those things that, it, you know, it was on a trailer to another movie that i watched a couple of weeks ago and i was like oh that looks interesting and uh and it, it uh, really was so fuck yeah let's start uh let's start the reading and add on dale this morning okay. more so than normal i have to pee more so than normal more so how than, much is that no, no no i mean for me more so than normal i have to pee today Oh. Just like more so than I thought you had, you had Dale on more so than normal. More it's so like than Dale norm, is pretty. If more <laughs> if more so than normal with Dale means war has begun. Yeah, war has begun, and it's. it's That's what I was doing. I was like, "How can it be more so than normal?" It's like he's taking the fifty cow out. Hey, when 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 Dale's on the podcast, I'm in the passenger seat. I just I buckle up, and I just go all right. All right, so you you, uh, you want to do the pee break while I do how to get my novel? How to get uh, your novel? You go on the dark web. That's where it is. Yeah, no, it's not on the dark web. Okay, like, okay. so uh, if you've heard uh, that my novel, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, is Tommy's favorite novel, 
which he always says, and you would like a copy on paper, then I would encourage you to go to lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, and buy it directly from them. They are the source publisher the, uh, of origin. It's, it's a print-on-demand published book. Uh, and, of course, zillions of things are on Amazon now, and you can get Mopey from Amazon. And it will cost you the same because when I signed up, to get the ISBN and uh, have Mopi available as a normal book and normal distribution channels. Uh, they didn't tell me that uh, Lulu would have to cha- charge the same price. They're not allowed to undersell the other distributors, but it's they don't have the overhead for the network and Amazon's charges. So uh, when you buy it directly from Lulu, I get a lot more money like, uh, six bucks instead of a dollar fifty. So that's you know. Uh, now, admittedly, it's more convenient to buy on Amazon. And if you want to do that, I understand. To this day, I get uh, more revenue from Amazon than I do from Lulu because that's where everybody finds it. Who finds it? So, uh, but uh, if you could take a few minutes, if you're interested, go to that channel. I would appreciate it, and uh, it's pretty cool. Now, if you want an ebook. Or uh, something else, <clears throat> then uh, if you want it for your Kindle, then yeah, go ahead and buy those from Amazon because there they are the publisher of Origin, and it doesn't matter. You know, it's uh, it's the same either way. But for print, paper, book that you can hold in your hands, uh, consider giving Lulu some love because they they print it anyway. They just uh, give me more of the money when you order it straight from them. So, is Tommy coming back? This sound chamber I've built is so effective that, <laughs> I mean, just while still in the room, on the just the other side, I couldn't hear you talking. <laughs> it's insane. It's actually insane. Like, I forget about it every once in a while. It's like, yeah, it works. It works really well. <laughs> I mean, it's eerie. Okay. So uh, I'm going to move you over here so I can look at my source material. Oh, yeah, do you like my new hoodie? Oh, wait. Yes, I didn't realize that was yours. What is... He's, that's James Jesus Angleton, the head of CIA counterintelligence. Oh! <laughs> and so I... I made I made what would James Jesus Angleton do? WWJJAD. What would James Jesus Angleton do? He would infiltrate, subvert, co-opt and run this situation. And, and he, if you're lucky, you might meet three people in your entire life who know what that that's means. Why I like it. It's an it's an esoteric, it's an esoteric, it's a fight club. People those yes. those who know know. Maybe I'll just stride through Langley with it. Someone would get it. Actually, I'd probably be okay. shot for being on grounds at the CIA. <laughs> I'd be like, they didn't like the hoodie. They'd be like, no, you were trespassing at CIA headquarters. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Touché. We don't care about the hoodie. We care that you were here and you're not supposed to be. I'd be like, bullshit. Be in- that was a political statement. They didn't like my hoodie. They didn't like my yeah. podcast. Sure. They'd be like, I mean, here's my ID. This is not a federal ID because I didn't get a real ID driver's license. I'd just be pissed drunk. I'd be like, what was Angleton do? Huh? Oh, what was Angleton do? I'll tell you what he do. Like, sir, you're in the director's office. God damn right. All right, let's get to right. this. Let's get to the reading. 
So today, my plan is to do parts 10 through 16 of The Curators as it was originally published. And Tommy, make a note to yourself. You, this, this will be for you. This will be part three. Okay. Since you, you know, this will be my third reading. Yeah. Uh, we will probably end up doing about 20 or so of those to get through the whole series. Uh, but uh, again, this is 10 through 16, which means that they were done over a course of six weeks. And this will carry us through the next major story arc, which started last week when our heroes got attacked and fought off their attackers with a weapon no one knew that we had and their attackers folded the world they had been exploring into its sun a, a bomb as the, gang as they were dying yeah and as, and as last time um yeah just if i have to use the i don't know what's up but if i have to use the restroom which i probably will just keep reading just disregard depends me. dude what depends depends yeah. depends and uh, oh, I also I'm trying out a new audio uh, effect that greatly reduces background noise. So I might be able to get rid of that like weird white noise artifact shit. Okay, well that might be another element of why the weird artifacts are showing up when I do a reading. Mm-hmm. We'll just have to see it because because I don't think you could hear it in real time no. when I was so so that that's like that was something that was happening on Zoom's end yeah. of the recording process because I didn't hear it. Yeah. And then you know when you when you upload it and then I listen to the you know it's just got all this weird stutter 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 speed up there, things going on none of it is a clean science. Well it is but I mean I should yeah. say I don't understand it's there's just with everything, the video, the audio, there's always little gremlins in it, and you just the whole thing is just I don't know. I'm just I'm still figuring. But you got to remember, all this all this compression technology was only invented in the early '90s. It's it's not as old as you are. So yeah. you know, <laughs> that's true. Is, yeah. Welcome to old age, man. It's like here here's the technology that's not as old as you are. <laughs> that's true. Fuck. I grew up with all this shit. Radio. Yeah, man. People were oh, doing well, this. I, no, I, I've already experienced when that, your though. parents T- were kids. Touchscreens. Those weren't a thing when I was born. No, they weren't. That's, yeah. Oh, smartphone. Go. I'm going to go yeah. get some Tums. My stomach's been grumbling. Okay. Shut up, Roger. Oh. Hey. Um, well, I know Tommy would want me to monologue. I already told you where to get my book if you want it. Um... Uh, the Curators was originally published on the uh, Reddit subreddit r slash HFY, which stands for Humanity, fuck yeah, uh, which is dedicated to stories that show uh, human beings having primacy and basically, you know, looking good and, and being the best over everything. It was formed as a reaction to the movie Avatar. We were... We were the bad guys, and we were incompetent and lost the battle against a bunch of primitives. And these you know, these guys were like, "No, no, no, no. That's like that, 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 that's not going to be the way that it works. That's not the way that it's going to happen." And so they started this. And it's a very friendly writers group. Uh, I didn't write for many years after uh, Corrosion folded up, and so RHFY got me back into the writing bug. And so. Uh, Okay, Tommy's back. And 
Well, let's do this thing. So when last we left our heroes, uh, they had been bombed from orbit, or not orbit, actually, uh, from a spaceship, and uh, escaped just barely with their lives. Turned out they were armed with a weapon even our hero Jay didn't know about. M told him to close his eyes so he wouldn't get blinded. Drilled a hole in their starship, and as it was falling toward the planet, the aliens folded the planet that they had been exploring into its star, which is a thing we were warned that folds drives could do. So now part 10. M took us back to Pretoria, since that's where the grasshopper was expected. Fortunately, M's landing spot and Quonsite Hut were fairly remote from the airstrip's active area because I had to loan her my pajama top for us to get to her quarters. M doesn't like to wear bedclothes. What I don't understand, she said as we were getting dressed, is if they meant to steal the grasshopper, how they expected to get it back to their fold ship. It's the main reason we've gone unchallenged in all these worlds. With their nanite tech, the aliens could get down with a little imagination, but getting back up from the surface without infrastructure is their big problem. Perhaps I can help with that, a familiar voice said. He just appeared in the room like a ghost materializing where neither of us happened to be looking. I realize you want to report to your people, but at the moment, I think it's rather more important for you to let us know what happened. The curator listened carefully as we related our story. When we were done, he said, I am afraid we bear some fault for this. We knew you were doing new things, but we failed to warn you of some of the hazards you might encounter. We really didn't expect for you to encounter raiders so soon as their homeworld and usual operating theater is halfway around the wheel of the galaxy. But the news of your activities has traveled far, and they apparently decided your tech would be a benefit to them. Raiders? Not such a young species, but much like yourselves, belligerent and capable of great selfishness. The act of folding out the entire world when they realized they were doomed was typical. We mourn the loss of so much of our effort, particularly knowing you were thinking of making use of the place. But you say they're like us. Aren't we also a threat? It is a matter of debate among us, but at the moment we favor waiting and seeing. So far, your kind are making your destiny, not stealing it from others. I was greatly relieved that it wasn't your fold drive that annihilated the planet. We've worked hard to make sure our drives can't be detuned that way. A few of our early ones still can, but they are scheduled to be destroyed and replaced with more secure ones in the near future. See, that's a clear difference between yourselves and the Raiders. They really don't see the threat that they pose looks to other species. You have individuals with that problem, but you also know that that is a problem. The Raiders, unfortunately, have a thoroughgoing culture teaching that strength and victory are the only virtues. Great space Vikings. They also re resemble your fictional Star Trek Klingons. You mentioned earlier that you had some idea how they plan to get Grasshopper up to their ship. Yes, you notice that they don't believe in making orbit on a raid. If they can conduct a raid in a few minutes, they can do it in time the ship to only fall a short distance toward the surface. And matching surface velocity instead of making orbit makes their operations fast. It's much easier to get something to space than to orbit, as your species has learned a great precision. And the Raiders have guided solid fuel rockets capable of doing that job for modest payloads. And strategically, it gives them an advantage, because if their ship is over a city, you don't dare disable it, even if you could. 
Had their raid gone as planned, after killing you, they would have strapped solid fuel boosters to the grasshopper and flown it out of the atmosphere, where their fold ship could engulf it at low velocity before folding off. We have to get serious about building defenses, M said. We have to worry a bit about our other children. The Raiders aren't coming for your other children, M said decisively. We have something they want and they know it. Now we have to make sure they don't ever get it. You have spread yourselves a bit thin, the curator warned. Only because we didn't know. We have 10 billion people. We have over 100 mothballed 747s waiting to be turned into starships. And we're making a full drive every month now. Tell me something. How many fold ships does a typical spacefaring species maintain? Three would be considered an extravagant fleet. They are like your naval aircraft carrier, self-contained worlds. Before this incident, we believe the Raiders had eight. I don't think we're going to be doing it that way. If you don't mind, I think I need to get to Earth and talk to some people about this. By all means, M stormed out, and minutes later, I heard Grasshopper firing up. Ambassador, how do you feel about all of this? The Raiders are murderous, I said. We used to be, and some of our individuals still are. People like M are going to try to harness this power without giving it to the barbarians to use to burn the galaxy down. We will give you your chance then, he said. Just be aware that there is a certain point at which we will have no choice but to intervene, even if that means burning all of your works down. I just nodded, and he disappeared. Part 11. I returned to Earth commercially, again on the converted 747 Olympic. I wondered as I boarded how many of those original Boeing engineers were still around and how it would feel for them to know that their 1960s era aircraft had been saved from the scrap heap by their usefulness as starships. On the flight home, well, it's not really a flight. It's more of a fall into Neptune's gravity well to adjust our velocity to match that of Earth. I used sticky pads to organize some of the documents M and I had assembled from our still unnamed new world. Some of those related to files on my tablet computer, and I spent some time watching them. Everything we had gone to the trouble to record, the pond where we had had a, rom a romantic frolic, the beaches where we had run, the dramatic mesa where we had envisioned high-altitude runways, and, of course, every living thing. All of it was gone in a fraction of a second. Part of me wanted to delete the files and burn the documents, but another part of me realized that these were now the only records left of this world, a world as vibrant and habitable as Earth had been just 100,000 years ago before humans entered the critical path that would now never exist. I did not realize that I was quietly sobbing until a man in uniform pushed a drink on me. I know, he said. I trained him at Edwards. You aren't a warrior, Jay. This is an awful thing for you to have to bear. I tasted the squeeze bulb. It was good old uncut Jack D. Not sure how this fixes anything, I sniffled. Some things you can't fix, the general said. All you can do is leave them as best you can manage. You're a good man, a better man for this than most of my colleagues. I finally looked across and realized that I was talking to a senior cabinet member. 
I had never met anyone within three pay grades of him, despite what I had been doing with the aliens. I don't know what to do with this stuff, I said, unable to think of anything else. Well, preserve it, of course. Given your brief time there, it will make a rather small and obviously inadequate museum. But in my line of work, we consider memory important. When you are trained to kill things, you have to understand them to be able to kill them. And sometimes when you come to understand a thing, you realize that killing it is not the correct solution. And sometimes you realize the wrong thing happened. And you need to be reminded and your students taught how it happened so we can avoid doing it again. I composed myself a bit and nodded. I realized that he had used the word students with some deliberation. I did not consider myself a teacher, but entire worlds of people would study and judge what I was doing. Then the captain announced that we were about to fold earthward and gravity would become a bit unpredictable as we fell into the thin upper atmosphere, so we should all strap in. Back on Earth, I saw that a line of six 747s lined up at jetways. Four were starships. Humans were doing amazing things. But at what risk? I soon got another shock. The man who had comforted me on the ship had actually been sent to retrieve me. The civilian fold ship had returned early and their ambassador was demanding to meet with me, not anyone else. We only had one 747 fold shuttle, a specially modified crossbridge, which could dock with the civilians. We had obviously stopped using chemical rockets once we got the fold drives working reliably and converted aircraft. Crossbridge was an awkward craft with a big telescoping tube sticking out its rear to meet the docking ring and an extra-large RCS system. We were working on other solutions, but it had been a bit of a quick hack. Okay, I said in astonishment as the airlock opened. I wish to say it would give me pleasure to see you again, Kay said, but I am afraid it is the opposite. I know we have a situation. I have prevailed on our council to halt our excursions to your world. We will no longer visit Earth. I wanted to tell you this directly. Why? Jay, your kind have destroyed a fold ship in the world. I hope you are proud of yourselves. That's not exactly fair. We were attacked and we didn't fold the planet off. We've been making sure our fold drives can't do that. Yours aren't the only full drives, though. Ours, the only ones we have ever known, cannot be locked down, as you suggest. You have attracted raiders to our part of the galaxy. You have created new weapons. Before you arrived, the raiders were a contained threat. Now, if they get your fold drive, they could be far more dangerous. And that's not even to consider your fold ship destroying sunlight cannon made from our communicator technology. We do not need this excrement in our domicile. I'm sorry you feel that way, but you have destroyed an equilibrium which has been stable for more than a billion of your years that was in place before the curators told your single-celled ancestors how to assemble themselves into multicellular structures. I just wish we could go back in time and let you destroy yourselves instead of helping you. We weren't going to destroy ourselves, Kay. Even the small danger of our folding our dead world Mars into the sun was past by the time you noticed us. We'll just see how that works out for you then, from a distance.
and my old friend Kay, to whom I had once bared my entire body so it could confirm there was no mark of the curators, turned on its awkward-looking insectoid heels and stalked off. For the next two days, I busied myself organizing our records of the destroyed world. I wasn't sure where the museum would be or how it would be accessed, but the general had asked me to preserve them, so I preserved them. Finally, M returned from her debriefing with the Foldship Project people. We have to get over this, she said when she saw how upset I was. I just saw a planet destroyed. I snapped. How do I get over that? It might not hurt that our guys have this fold span limiter working. So Earth is safe. Our personal curator even stopped by to assure me that it is an elegant solution that fortunately doesn't limit their activities. They would have been a bit upset if we had deployed the fold inhibitor instead. Would it have inhibited their really advanced fold fields? A fold is a fold and you can't make it. It doesn't matter what the target aperture is. He was very polite about it, but hinted that they would have had no choice but to destroy a functioning inhibitor. I also got the strong impression that nobody, including the curators themselves, had ever considered trying to build a span limiter, probably because they were depending on self-interest and the lack of remote control to discourage anyone from turning a full drive into a weapon that way. Also, possibly because making a span limiter out of nanites is either unworkable or impossible. They can fold themselves off the surface of a planet without disturbing the air or the grass they're standing on, but we made better technology than theirs. It's different. Just as our air-breathing jet starships are different from anything else any of them have done in billions of years because none of them have ever had a good reason to build a jet engine, and you can't build one with nanites. The general on the Olympic had left me the last half of the bottle of Jack Daniels, and I poured myself another glass. This is some crazy shit, and I'm not sure I know how to deal with it, I said to the wall with my back turned to her. Jay, she said softly, touching my shoulder. I was trained to kill people by pushing a button from five clicks up. Nobody ever trained you that way. You just wanted to people make people feel better about themselves by giving them clearer skin. And then she hugged me and made a sound as half laugh and half sob. How are we ever going to get through this? I asked her. Let's start by having some pancakes. This requires an interlude. In the comments to the previous episode, uh, a lot of people mentioned pancakes. And I didn't realize that on HFY, pancakes is shorthand for they had sex because there was an infamous not safe for work story that was basically a triple X rated encounter between a human male and an alien female who was considered homely by her own people, but uh, not to us. And uh, after a protracted uh really graphic sexual encounter the uh pair fall asleep and then when they wake up uh the female alien is like what do we do now and the human says let's have some pancakes and so since then pancakes on hfy has meant let's have sex or they had sex <laughs> so that's pancakes. A, a little bit of uh reddit hfy <laughs> stuff there 
So anyway, that brings us to part 13. Uh, oh. I, excuse me here. I clicked to the wrong link somewhere. You're good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That brings us to part 12. I busied myself working with Em and her colleagues on a number of working groups trying to figure out how to best defend Earth and our new colonies and deal with our suddenly dubious position within the galactic culture. Then one night I woke up stone cold alert straight out of a dream as if I'd been ejected from it and woke Em up by shouting, I know how to fix this. Em stirred in her sleep and said, fix it in the morning. In the morning, I went to the facility commander and told him I wanted to make a proposal to everyone at once. I had been something of a hotshot alien specialist before being attacked by aliens myself, so I was given some priority. After another week, we filled a conference room with scientists, engineers, military brass, and a couple of politicians. I had told them only that I had a possible comprehensive solution to our raider problem, and I wanted to present it all at once so that it could be digested, challenged, and defended all at once. We have big problems, I opened. We know we can kill a raider ship and prevent it from folding our world into the sun, but we also know they like to park their fold ships stationary with respect to the ground, so that if they fall, they can't fold out, and a three-mile-wide fold ship is a hell of a falling object. It's not fair, but the civilians have ostracized us, and there is a limit to what we can ask of the Pompeians, much less any of the other races we have even less contact with. And we all know how much help we've gotten from the curators. I paused for a moment. I have a simple proposal. I know it will sound strange, but I ask you to hear me out. I propose that we find the raiders and give them everything they tried to steal, and at least one more thing beyond that. To call what happened in the, next, in the room next pandemonium would be to do it a disservice. In the front row, M regarded me with eyes widened by shock, and the cabinet member who had come to Pretoria to fetch me regarded me with strange calm. He eventually got up, joined me on stage, pulled a service pistol, and fired it into the ceiling. I was thinking it must be loaded with blanks when I felt bits of plaster falling on my head. Shut the fuck up! And let's hear him out, he said. Then he turned to me and said, this better be good, son. First, I said, we need to talk about Vikings. And I talked about Vikings and many other things. And there were protests and challenges, counter arguments. And after four hours, a speakerphone called to the White House. And after that, the decision was made to follow my recommendation I was pleasantly surprised to find the door to M's dorm unlocked. She had even gotten a fresh bottle of bourbon. Moving in silence, she made me a drink and handed it to me. I hope you aren't. Part of me wants to kill you, she said in a tone that made it very clear she would be quite capable of doing that if sufficiently inspired. She poured herself a drink. And the other part of you? She knocked back the entire drink. I had the sense that she had done this a few times before I arrived. That part knows you're right. God help us. Did someone call for help? A familiar voice asked. I thought you hardly ever communicated directly with your children, M said. 
you have proven more extraordinary than most. I would not have missed that presentation for anything. Very surprising, of course, not at all what any of us expected. And what would you think of your troublesome raider children spreading out through the galaxy? As with yourselves, as long as they do not molest the critical path worlds, we don't care. Developed worlds have everything the raiders do, and as far as the others, our mandate is carbon-based intelligent life on as many worlds as possible. You and the raiders are both carbon-based intelligent life forms. And how many worlds get destroyed in the process? It has been over a billion years since a world was folded into its star, the curator said. We live much longer than you, but we are not immortal, so you two are the only living beings in the entire galaxy who have ever actually seen it happen in person. He bowed his head. And it was my people who did it the last time, for reasons I'd rather not discuss. Wow, Em and I said more or less at the same time. Anyway, you spent some time discussing the first quest of your proposal, finding the raiders, since they are on the other side of the galaxy and didn't leave a calling card. He extended his hand and offered me a folded post-it note. When I opened it, I saw a handwritten seven-digit number. We recently gave you a map of the galaxy, he said. Every developed world is listed. The list is indexed. That number is the index of the Raider's world. And poof, he disappeared. This new gift turned what had seemed like a long-term project into a much shorter-term one. After much discussion, everyone agreed that there was only one team to send on the first mission, and we decided to use the original C-130 boxcar rather than one of our newer and more capable ships. We did upgrade its full drive and install better fuel cells for out-of-atmosphere power. The engineers had a bit of work to do on one part of my proposal, particularly working out how to adapt it to some nanite-based technology, but as I had guessed, it was a reasonable challenge. Hmm. Being on the other side of the galaxy, the Raider world was moving at about 400 kilometers per second relative to solid to the Earth, and it took 10 hours of falling toward Neptune with 12 folds to rub out the difference. Before we folded across the galaxy, we were going fast enough to go from the Earth to the Moon in about an hour. And then we didn't fold out to the exact coordinates. Our instruments aren't calibrated to that kind of precision, and we had never folded such a distance before. Em was learning as much as she was practicing skill as she figured out where we were based on the known points in the galaxy map and sharpened our position toward the Raider homeworld. Finding the world itself, the other worlds of the system, a suitable gas world to use as a thrust attractor, and actually matching velocity took us two days. The Raiders could, of course, detect this fold activity, and when we made low orbit, they were waiting for us. You've never done this before, have you, was our greeting. Not from such a distance, Em said. We seek the beings known as raiders. We bring gifts. We are the raiders, but others would warn that buying us off doesn't work. We do not bring Dangeld. I was pretty sure that translated as three on the other end. We seek partnership. Others would warn you that we make treacherous partners. The same could be said of us. Would you at least hear our proposal? Your craft is puny. We could destroy you easily. That is true. And unlike our last encounter, this time we come unarmed. We do not want to destroy another of your ships or another world. <coughs> there was a long pause. How do you propose to make landfall? 
We need a flat strip of land. We knew how to describe it in common galactic units. A vehicular road, beach, or desert flat might be available. We will contact you on your next orbit. A little over an hour later, we received a detailed description of how to get to what turned out to be the roof of a seriously large building. We had to make a couple of folds and fall a bit to get in the right position, and then M brought us down, gliding down through the increasingly close-up and detailed images they sent us. Everyone who greeted us was armed, and there were a lot of them. The raiders weren't quite feline. They were furry, and their ancestors obviously carnivorous hunters, but they didn't quite resemble anything familiar. They reminded me more of lemurs than anything else on Earth. They all pointed their weapons at us as one of them stepped to the forefront and said, you say you bring gifts. Now we get to part 13. The raider's fur was decorated in a dazzling mix of colors and patterns, and it took a moment for me to realize these were artificial, not natural. The raiders were bipedal with hands much like our own, but oddly cloven feet, which were thickly shielded from the ground by some kind of horn or nail shield, and they wore their mark of the curators across what a human would call his chest. The colorful patterns carefully avoided the mark. It was not clear how their weapons worked. They, they appeared heavy, and they had roughly the shape of a long gun. But whatever they were, it was clear from the way they handled the devices that they could make something bad happen if pointed at you. I gestured toward the boxcar and said, This is our first gift. We give you this starship. It is an example of our craft for you to either use or take apart and inspect as you desire. We place no constraints on this gift. Not that you could. Of course. What do you want in return? We would like to make a proposal to your leaders. This is just the beginning of what we hope will be a long-term partnership. They took us to a place that looked a lot like a hotel, except for the really secure doors and lack of windows. And we were there for a while. They gave us water and eventually food, which was obviously nanite duplication of template stuff we had left behind on the boxcar. And otherwise, we had no communication of any kind with anybody. Em worried about that. But I told her they were probably picking the boxcar apart before deciding whether we were worth an interview. Finally, we were summoned. There were about 30 raiders physically in the room, but the real leaders appeared by video. Your perverse modesty habits give us worry that you might be hiding weapons, the leading physically present raider said with a shrug. And we have also been told that you have no mark of the curators, one of the leaders said from a large projection screen. We find this highly unbelievable. I started to unbutton my shirt, but Em stopped my hands away. No, Jay, I got this, she said, and she disrobed, casually tossing her clothes to the corners of the room as if she didn't care if she ever retrieved them. It's appropriate, she said as she cast off her shirt. After all, I was naked when I destroyed their ship. I sucked in my breath, but the aliens didn't react. We are more relaxed in our perverse modesty habit when we sleep, she continued, pants to the other side of the room. Our ship squeak, are you sleeping? Yes, it was an excellently planned attack, she said as she flung her panties away. How did you ever prevail? I had programmed my ship to monitor for un unexpected fold activity. It woke me up when yours entered the system. Your ship can monitor for fold activity without active human operators? Our ships can fold without human operators. 
But in this case, all it had to do is get me and Jay awake into it before your guys bombed our tent. She let this sink in. As with the Vikings, victory is victory, but killing your enemy as they sleep is not exactly glorious. M, now naked, held her hands up and slowly spun around so they could see her from every angle. Extraordinary, several voices said from the projectors, and then one, but you are marked. If not the curators, how did that happen? M displayed her tattoos. As with everything else, the curators were useless to us, and we have to mark ourselves. We do it by injecting ink into the skin. It's painful, but that's part of the meaning. This one is the first combat group I flew with. This one celebrates becoming a test pilot, flying things which might not work as we expect so we can fix them if they don't kill us first. And this one is my first combat kill. It's been a while since we had a hot war on Earth, so that's your ship. I was not sure this provocation was a good idea, but M as a warrior and her instincts proved true. It is good that our warriors are remembered, one of the video leaders said. So let us hear from your companion, warrior, one of the others said. M motioned for me to stand back again. I am a warrior, but Jay is a diplomat. I trained to kill. He trained to heal and found himself mixed up in this galactic business. Please don't think of him as a weak person because he hasn't killed a fold ship. In the important ways, the ways that matter most to both of our species, he is stronger than me. And then she waved me on. We give you the ship boxcar, which we use to establish our own first beachhead on an undeveloped world. Inside it, you will find all of the tools and technical manuals necessary to disassemble and maintain it, and samples of the fluids necessary to service and fuel it. Your nanite should be able to duplicate you an adequate supply of them. You're welcome to use the ship as it is or pick it apart for its technology. We will answer any technical questions you have for us. Our intention is to keep no secrets of our technology from you. The reason we make this offer is that we want you to understand how difficult it would be for you to switch from your established nanite technology to our methods. Our engines and our tiny fold drives are built on generations of work by hundreds of thousands of people, building tools that were used to build tools that were needed to build more tools. Unlike yourselves, we had no nanites, so there were many intermediate products we needed that justified this technology as we built it up. There are vast complexes staffed by thousands of humans dedicated to making various small parts of the boxcar. We think you would find it hard to justify duplicating all that work just to make small fold ships. We could be wrong, in which case we will give you all the help we can. But even with an all-out effort by your entire species, it would be decades before you're able to make these things without our help. But we did not come here to discourage you. We came here to offer you the same ability that we have to independently create colonies for your people on the undeveloped curated worlds of the galaxy, which greatly outnumber those that have developed. Since your fold ships are too large to land, you need to keep them in orbit if you're not doing a quick raid. And your bottleneck is that if you need ground infrastructure to generate power for ground to orbit shuttles, that infrastructure, like the fold ships, is too large to transport to the surface of another world. So you can get there, but getting back is not practical. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a small projector. If I may, I said. The physically present raiders stiffened, but they didn't interfere. I turned it on and projected a picture onto the wall behind me. There were murmurs. I knew this basic Earth consumer tech was far smaller than anything they could make. 
Your power generation technique is clean and elegant, using the fold drive to recycle falling objects past magnetic coils, but it's not very energy dense and you need a lot of towers. Nanites make such construction practical, but not fast, and the nanites themselves need power to do the construction. These are portable power generating devices that work on a different principle. This station is based on two structures we call shipping containers. They are designed to be transported and can be parachuted to the surface of a world from a fold ship. They work by using your microfold communication technology to tap energy from the interior of a star, using it to boil water to drive a turbine-driven generator. You are watching a team of six humans assemble these two units into a station that will generate enough power to return a shuttle to orbit in a few days. It will take them four days to get everything hooked up and working. I let this settle in. Unlike the fold drive, this is a technology that is within your immediate reach and with nanite tech and tools and parts easily built with nanite tech. We have generators of generations of experience with these steam generators that we will share with you. And while we used the same microfold sunlight power to destroy your ship, this was our first application for the solar microfold. It was the power generator that gave us the idea for the sunlight cannon. So you will be giving us your super weapon too, one of the leaders said from a monitor. You don't even need us for that. The only secret of the sunlight cannon is that it's possible to make them at all. Making boilers and generators can be a bit tricky though, and we can steer you past a lot of mistakes that we made learning these crafts. From another monitor, this is an extraordinary offer which seems much more likely to be some kind of trick than to be genuine. These are extraordinary times. We reason that if you are busy expanding your culture to new worlds, you will have no need to make war with us on the other side of the galaxy or even your old neighbors. We have this experience with members of our own species who sometimes became raiders. Buying them off did not work, but accepting them as neighbors and working together with them in partnership did. Within a few generations, nobody remembered that our ancestors had once been bitter enemies. You have the ship. We make this further offer. We will give you the location of Earth. We have brought the segments of a docking ring, which will make it possible for our shuttle to dock with you. Mount it to one of your fold ships and send it to Earth. All we ask is that you make stable orbit. We will provide shuttle service for any personnel you wish to send, and we will show them anything they want to see. Our production facilities, our transportation infrastructure, our power plants, even our weapons. And we will give them the power generation technology, which was a bit too big to fit on the boxcar. I offered the projector to one of the physically present raiders who seemed to be in charge, and they escorted us back to our room. M did not bother to retrieve her clothing, but it was delivered to us in a leather bag a couple of hours later. We were locked in our suite and had no communications with the outside world, but they treated us decently. After two days, a screen lit up and one of the raider leaders addressed us. We have decided to accept your offer to visit Earth. The fold ship has just departed with your docking ring in place. We were kind of hoping to go with it, I said. You should hope this goes well, the raider said. Whether you ever see your world again depends on the reception we receive from your people. Well, that's not ominous at all, I said as the screen went dark. And not exactly unexpected either. Vikings, remember, M said. Just be glad we're not in chains in a dungeon. Yet.
part 14. We were in our comfortable but isolated prison apartment for three more days before there was a knock on the door. They had never knocked before, and we didn't know how to offer entry. But a screen lit up and told us to just say, open, in English. M said, open, and a single, apparently unarmed raider bowed before crossing the threshold. Your colors look familiar, I said. Weren't you one of the on one of the screens during our presentation? I was indeed, Human J. I am Scree, the praetor of resources. From our communications, we believe your version of me leads what is called your Department of the Interior. I thought you were afraid we might have bombs in our clothes, M said. Indeed we did, but you're welcome at your world has surpassed our every expectation. Your people have extended an unimaginable generosity considering how our species met, and your constructions are said to be awe-inspiring. We were very foolish to risk making you enemies, and so the two of you now have the same freedom of our world, and I am tasked to be your guide. Anything you wish to see, you may see. Anywhere you wish to go, you may go. Anything you wish to ask will be answered, if I can access the answer. We don't even know where to begin, I said. Truthfully, we know you closely explored the young world Seville, and our technology, like most of that in the galaxy, is almost exactly the same as theirs. We just use it a bit differently. Tactics, M said. Quite so, human M. I have also been asked to mention that we know that you are the individual who single-handedly defeated our full ship in battle. This act commands our deepest respect. She looked at me. And human J, we are told you are the individual who prevailed on your society to extend the generous offer of your help to colonize our undeveloped worlds. We are afraid that this is a debt we, we may never adequately repay. Never attacking us again would be quite adequate repayment, I said. My advisors say your facial grimace indicates amusement. It is an amusing observation, but we are as fiercely loyal as we are belligerent, and we will not consider mere peace adequate compensation for what you are offering. We attacked you, and then we treated you rudely when you came to us in peace. We seek to rectify that. Do you have any natural wonders that you are proud of, M asked. We have seen much on the planets we've explored, but on Earth we find that things like mountains and waterfalls and volcanoes and glaciers inspire us. As with the technology, these might be things found on many worlds, but your examples would be yours and worthy of visiting. So Raider N bowed, and we did a little pocket tour of Raider World Natural Wonders. Toward the end of the first day, I realized I had been hearing scree periodically when she referred to her own world. Yes, we are told you are also known for naming worlds in your language, she said. Would you care to name ours? I've actually been thinking about it, I said. I choose to call your world Kattegat. Is there any significance? A thousand years ago, there were humans who lived much as your people do, except without space travel, it was other humans they raided from the sea. They are considered among the fiercest warriors our kind ever produced. Kattegat was the home village of one of their most successful leaders. N bowed again. A name we accept with honor then, she said. How did your ancestors deal with the raiders of Kattegat? They were called Vikings. Our world was very fractured, still is actually, and different people reacted to them differently. The most successful offered them land to settle in the hospitality of neighbors. 
Within a few generations, nobody remembered that their ancestors had once been bitter enemies. It is not just your constructions that are awe-inspiring, and said. It is said that in our deep past, we turned against ourselves, as you describe, but with our curation, we turned our aggression outward toward other races and other worlds. But your memory of that era is relatively fresh, and you have applied that same lesson to interstellar relations. We may have much to learn from you. We were in something like an airport, and another raider approached us. His gait was halting and his fur was spotty, and I realized he must have been very old. I need to introduce you to this fellow, and said. He is one of our most renowned artists. If I may, the stranger said, would you send some part of your bare skin? If you don't mind, it might be stained for a few speed. Em and I looked at one another, and she said, renowned artist, eh? And stuck out her forearm. He applied a few dots of color to her skin. I followed suit. I need to make sure there's no irritation and that the removal process works as intended, he said, before retreating. What is that about, M asked when he was gone. Oh, it could be a very big deal if it's workable, was all N said. A couple of hours later, we visited a volcano and the same individual returned and swabbed our skin with what smelled for all the world like rubbing alcohol and the dots of color came off. He seemed very satisfied. I will see you again soon, he said. I did ask what this was about, didn't I, M said. He's an artist. He now knows that he might have a canvas. The next day, N properly introduced us to the colorist. You have probably noticed we wear colored patterns on our fur. We would feel odd, perhaps, as you do without clothes, without these patterns. They honor our ancestors and our own accomplishments and proclaim our identity. Our colors give us courage in battle. O is our most senior and accomplished colorist. For years, our top leaders would only accept color from him. Three ago, he retired, and he hasn't given color for many years. But he asked us for an audience with you. The old raider bowed and said, I humbly request the honor of giving you color, he said. It would mean a great deal to my people, particularly those who lost family on the fold ship. Sweet. Color honors the dead and celebrates victory. Color cements truce. We know your ways are very different, but for our people, accepting color would be a great step toward unity between our species. So this is what the color daubs were about. Yes, I would not offer this if I thought it would harm you, or considering your ways, if I wasn't sure I could remove the color after an appropriate period of time. What would you consider an appropriate period of time? A day would be sufficient, Ho said. If you're willing, more would honor us. Well, I'm in, Em said without hesitation. What about you, Jay? I'm a bit reluctant to, if I may offer a suggestion, it might be useful for one of you to continue to exhibit your modesty habit. And Bo said, all of our people will be watching this, and most of them don't know about that. I glanced back at Em and wondered if she realized she wasn't just offering to be naked, she was offering to be naked on planet-wide and possibly galactic TV. But I just said, could you just color my parts of my body I normally expose, like my face and my hands? I can work with that, Bo said. Later, I said to him, you do realize that if they broadcast this globally, the chances of it eventually reaching Earth are something like 100 percent. 
She shrugged. Sure, but I think one of us has to do it. And have you noticed that all the aliens we have met so far have rigid or bony penises? If you go naked, I think you'll end up spending the whole show explaining how your dick works. And let's face it, when that got back to Earth, it would be a little bit more humiliating than me becoming a pinup model. Two days later, we were standing just off stage as we listened to a Kattegat Media personality introduce us. It was weirdly familiar, but also oddly nostalgic, because the large cameras and manual controls for everything gave it a studio in Earth 1970s feel. We were given to understand that nearly everyone on the planet was watching, and there was a live audience of several hundred individuals. M and I both wore mics and earphones for the translators, which were powered by their vast and deeply buried supercomputer complexes, and M was naked to display the colors O had given her. Our visitors from Earth, we heard in our earpieces, and at this cue, we walked on stage and bowed toward the host and then toward his audience, both in-house and global. And I wrote, to be continued. Part 15. As he walked on stage, a thunderous war filled the studio. The audience were stomping the floor with their naturally hard-soled feet, and the floor was wood, so it made quite a racket. In fact, I realized that the entire building seemed to be made of wood, as were many of the other Katagadian structures we had seen on our tour. Being used to our extensive use of wood on Earth, I had failed to notice how sharply this contrasted with both Seville and Pompeii, where almost everything was made of nanite matrices. We have a very unusual show today, the host said with a flourish that could have been taken directly from Earth late night TV. Our guests tonight are aliens who crossed the entire galaxy to find us, despite having never ventured more than a few hundred light years from their home before. <coughs> Our guests have only had the full drive for a few years and space travel of any kind only for a few generations. Almost within living memory, they did not have electric power or power transport. Yet today they cross the galaxy and craft they build themselves. There was polite stomping. There are a couple of other things you need to know about our guests who call themselves humans and their world Earth. As you can see from the female who graciously offered to wear and display colors for us, they have no mark of the curators. Although the Earth itself was apparently curated, being typical of a world shaped to host life, the ancestors of humans themselves haven't been curated for some time. They have achieved all their accomplishments without any of the usual help. No gifts of fire or agriculture or writing or steam power or electric theory. And no nanites. They had to build it all themselves. This elicited a different reaction from the audience, a collective gasp of surprise. I know what you're thinking. Nobody has ever heard of an uncurated species with language or civilization, much less space travel before. Well, we have now. Our first encounter with humans was with these two individuals, our present day guests. This was their fold ship. On the monitors, we saw the broadcast image change to a picture of the grasshopper in space. The fold ship we destroyed must have gotten it to them in the last moments before its destruction. Another audience gasp. Kattegatians, this is the human fold ship, small hopping insect. This time the audience reaction was different still. It was bewilderment. Human J, you named this craft, didn't you? Would you care to tell us the significance? Certainly. Thank you for your welcome, by the way. 
Grasshopper is capable of taking off from the surface of the world, flying high enough on its air-breathing engines to fold safely away, and dropping into the atmosphere and landing with its air-breathing engines on another world. It doesn't need surface infrastructure to do any of this. At this, the audience started stomping. This was something anyone in the galaxy would recognize as extraordinary. There's much more, the host said. Being raiders, when we learned the humans were building ships like this, we wanted one for ourselves, for obvious reasons. And what do we do when we want something on Kattegat? The audience enthusiastically shouted in unison, and the translator dryly said, We raid. And that is precisely what we did. And you might wonder, since we crossed the galaxy to steal their technology, why M&J are sitting here in a broadcast studio instead of in a cell being interrogated as alien prisoners? The audience murmured in confusion. The small hopping insect wasn't just equipped with a fold drive. It was armed. While they were sleeping, it autonomously woke them up and warned them that we were coming so they could escape our surprise attack. And when we gave chase, well, human M... This was your triumph, was it not? Why don't you tell us what happened next? M, who was naked in a building full of aliens, told them, I fired on them with the sunlight cannon and fatally damaged their ship. As they fell toward the ground, since they did not have orbital velocity, my full drive alerted me to anomalous fold activity, and I folded us out just in time to watch them fold the entire planet into its host star. The audience gasped, and there were some growls of anger. I'm sorry about the loss of your ship and your people, M continued, but I think your own people would say that if someone comes after you, you will do whatever you have to to escape and hit back. The host made a gesture toward the audience, and they began stomping rhythmically rhythmically in unison. Humans, this is how we express respect towards those who have earned it. The stomping turned more chaotic, like the applause we had heard earlier. And there is even more to this extraordinary story. The humans took the trouble to find us, but when our guests came, they did not bring their super weapon. This is what happened. On the monitors, they played the tape of our initial encounter after landing. When I told them the fold ship boxcar was a gift and that we wished to be allies, this left the audience staring in dumbfounded silence. Would you care to explain why any species, much less two individuals such as yourselves, responds to an attempt to raid and kill you with such generosity? I reasoned that if you wanted our technology so badly, you must have some good reason. There is no shortage of resources in the galaxy, but we knew from our short association with a couple of other curated races that there is a shortage of ways to reach those resources on worlds that aren't already developed. We came to offer you such a method so you wouldn't feel the need to steal ours again. We knew it would be very hard for you to duplicate our industries, so we came up with something easier for you to use with your existing nanite tech. And so they did. As we broadcast, our fold ship Scree is in stable orbit around the Earth, and humans have been providing transport for our research teams for several days now. They have generously offered us everything we need to colonize undeveloped worlds on our own without their future assistance, and to bring resources home in whatever quantity we desire. There was stomping applause, but I think a bit of puzzlement in the audience. Our away teams have sent us some holiday snaps, the host said, and I wondered what human had taught the translator that phrase. Take a look. The first picture was of the Manhattan skyline. 
This is just one human city, the host said. Some of those buildings are over 80 levels tall. The tallest we can safely build with nanites are about 20 levels, and those sacrifice a lot of floor area to structural support. There are hundreds of cities that look like this on Earth. There was stomping. These skyscrapers are built on skeletons of pure metal. Switched to picture of a foundry pouring liquid steel. Humans melt and brute-shape metal on a scale that we can barely imagine. You might wonder where the power to do this comes from. Switched to a picture of the Hoover Dam. Some of it comes from works like this, which exploit water pressure from hydrological runoff. Picture of a conventional power plant. Most comes from the which use fire to boil water to turn electrical generators. Picture of solar cell fields. These wind turbines are mirror-grown right, almost as tall as the sky buildings, and they would be impossible to build with nanites. The audience was completely silent. So, this is the other end of human technological prowess picture of the Boeing assembly plant with a couple of dreamliners in the foreground. This place makes aircraft which use fire to propel themselves through the atmosphere like enormous birds. So far, every human starship has been a converted aircraft. All dust has to be removed from the air and the precision employed is unimaginable. Thousands of these facilities produce billions of products per day. We may lament our scarcity resources, but right. Dodger. Ooh, Roger, Roger. What the hell is it? It, it? it had been getting a little glitchy for the last minute, but the audio is still coming through, but then you just went black. Yeah, it, it just, you know, the just completely poop yeah. dropped dropped out yeah yeah uh, yeah. So, I, so, yeah i could i could hear most of it you're going through yeah you're saying yeah the foundries the steel we're using solar power hydroelectric you're kind of explaining all the all the human feats and what we have to do and then it started yeah. to get all choppy okay so, so, so pick, pick up at like uh solar okay um picture of solar cell field but while that technology built their society, it has created problems. And now much of their power comes from resources like these, directly turning sunlight to electricity. Picture of a windmill farm or wind. These wind turbines are miracles in their own right, almost as tall as the sky buildings, and they would be impossible to build with nanites. The audience was completely silent. None of this explains their aircraft or tiny full drives, though. This is the other end of human technological prowess picture of the Boeing assembly plant with a couple of dreamliners in the foreground. This place makes aircraft which use fire to propel themselves through the atmosphere like enormous birds. So far, every human starship has been a converted aircraft. Picture of another large industrial building. This place makes electronic surface wafers. 
picture of the inside with clean room protocols being observed. All dust has to be removed from the air, and the precision employed is unimaginable. Thousands of these facilities produce billions of products per day. We may lament our scarcity of resources, but nobody in the galaxy has ever seen industrial works like those of Earth. The audience began rhythmically stomping the sign of respect. After the intermission, we will get more personal with these beings who crossed the galaxy to show generosity after we tried to kill them. I didn't think you had a capitalist system, I told the host when we were off air. What is the purpose of the break? We will show what I believe your people call public service advisories. It gives the away audience a chance to attend personal business and us a chance to make small corrections. While we were off air, the colorist O was escorted on stage and seated next to us. I hope your colors are wearing well, he said to M. Just fine, she said. We couldn't read the countdown, but the translator alerted us that it was nearing zero. Welcome back, the host said. We are now joined by one of our most renowned artists, the fur colorist O. Welcome back, sir. It's been a while, O said. It's been three since you were retired from offering color. I don't guess I have to ask why you came back. There's been many generations since a colorist has had the opportunity to color an opponent who beasts in battle. M&M has offered me a great privilege, which I humbly hope I have fulfilled. Since you colored her whole body, I suppose you can verify she has no mark of the curators. That is true. And in private, her companion allowed me to examine him, too. We all know the curators embed their mark deeply, and it is hard to completely obscure we also have confirmation from the genetic scans they allowed at our request. It has been millions of squeeze since the curators touched the human's ancestors. If I may make an aside, this privacy thing is interesting. Human J, you wear garments to obscure your body. Care to explain that to us? Our modesty habit goes back to our earliest days. On Earth, we actually have laws requiring the use of clothes to obscure parts of our bodies from public view. Whatever for? Well, clothing turns out to be useful. Like your fur colors, it can display status or personal style, and it can also protect against the environment. Because we wear clothing, we can comfortably live in some of the most hostile environments on Earth. And even in mild climates, our ancestors apparently found constant exposure to sexual temptation distracting. But surely that would only be a factor when you were in season. We have a rich genre of anecdotes about what a mistake it is to trust ourselves to do anything important when we're in season. Em and I looked at one another and couldn't help laughing. Uh, how often are you folks in season? About one month per year. Fortunately, we learned to stagger our seasons long ago using hormones, so we aren't all crazy and unreliable at the same time. Em and I looked at one another again and broke out in giggles. Your expressions indicate mirth, the host said. What's so funny? Uh, humans are always in season, M said. Eyes went wide with astonishment throughout the studio. You mean that right now the two of you could theoretically... There's nothing theoretical about it. But surely you aren't fertile all the time. 
No, naturally, females like myself are fertile a few days per month, but males are always fertile, and we are all always ready to mate, even when the female isn't fertile. Our biologists believe evolution selected this for social reasons, but it did become a problem when we invented cities. Most of our closest animal relatives are more like yourselves. This is amazing. I wasn't given this in prep. You built the most ambitious tech in the galaxy in just a couple of generations, despite being constantly distracted by sexual feelings? Well, now you know why we normally wear clothes, I said. Some of the audience actually stomped at that. But you have agreed to be naked for us, the host said to M. We do understand this is rather unusual for humans. Well, it was necessary to give O a proper canvas. And honestly, I would feel a lot less safe doing this on Earth. Here, I understand nobody is sexually distracted by my body. Not exactly nobody, I said with a small snicker. I plan to mate with you anyway, she said matter-of-factly. I don't need everyone in broadcast range to get the same idea. Wow, the host said. Well, coloristo, can you top that by explaining your designs? I doubt it, O said with a rumble that we had been coached to understand was their form of laughter. I colored him's entire body, of course, and Jay allowed me his hand, head and hands, according to his race's more typical modesty habit. I started them both, both the same, with the burst of life on the upper right of the face, titanium white to illustrate the ray of their sunlight cannon. O motioned for him to stand up. Across the front of her body, we have M's training. She is quite an heroic figure, having risked her life to test machinery that might not work. Human technology is so new that fatal failures happen with some frequency. And on her back, the sunlight cannon hits our fold ship's creep. In its death throes, it transitions to her thighs where I place the streak of the small hopping insect's last moment escape and the bright-rimmed blackness of destruction as the world beneath them was folded into its star. There was generous stomping. For Jay, having only his fans, face and hands to work with, I also started with the sunlight cannon on his face. But in this case, his hands are green with life, representing the extraordinary human forgiveness and generosity and the new potential for our own species, which our alliance may portend. As an artist, I found it very beautiful that both of these outcomes could emerge from the same violent origin. Thank you, O, the host said. For our last segment, I have a connection to our Praetor of Resources, N, who has been escorting our human guests for the last few days. Praetor N, are you with us? So I am, a voice replied. The broadcast screens showed a still picture of N and a transcription in alien type, and M and I got voice translations in English in our earphones, as we were used to I now. Praetor, what is your impression of the humans? Well, I have only dealt directly with your guests, but I am also in touch with our away team at Earth, and I can say that I have seen much more than you have been able to show your audience. We are learning to melt metals to make pressure vessels and precision bearings and a few other things we need to make smart, portable power stations. They have even offered to trade with us for these finished goods until we have our own manufacturing up to speed. So we anticipate that we will begin exploration not to raid, but to colonize new worlds within a month or two. At this, the studio erupted in stomping, which the host allowed to go on for some time. The host and O even joined in the stomping. M and I bowed repeatedly, which we had been coached was the polite response to such praise. Finally, the host gestured for quiet. M and J, what are your personal plans for the future? 
we had been hoping to go home with your fold ship, Em said, but your security people had different ideas. Praetor N was still on the line. We did not know what our reception would be like at Earth, he said. If we had known, we would have sent you along. But if you do want to get home soon, may I offer a proposal? Some of us would like to try out your gift to us, the fold ship square shipping conveyance. Would you be willing to take some of us home with you and show us how to fly it? I deferred to M, and she bowed and said we would be honored. <coughs> Part 16. For a moment, I thought I would be making some pancakes with M after we returned to our quarters, but it turned out there was a raider waiting for us there. I apologize for the intrusion, she said with a small bow. Uh, that's okay, we just didn't realize you would be here. That's because your hosts don't know. I know my colleague told you that we walk among all of your children, even among the miscreants such as these, and some would say yourselves. You're a curator. Aren't the raiders listening in on us? Oh, of course they are, but it's trivial for us to defeat such measures. They think you're quietly watching a recording of your own show. To what do we owe the honor, then? There are those among us who think we should have revealed ourselves to our children aeons ago. The argument against this was that it would break the stability of our galactic garden. But now that the stability of our garden is in jeopardy anyway, those voices are more active, and one result is that we are making these contacts with you humans I believe my colleague imparted to Jay what a departure this is in all of our long history. So he did, I said. Of course, there is a way for you to protect the stability of your garden. I believe he said you resorted to it in the distant past. If you refer to folding your world into your star, that is the last thing we would contemplate. Even the raiders do not disappoint us. The fact that they have managed to make so much trouble for the last 700,000 of your years makes them one of our more interesting families, and it's why we are inclined to forgive them this once for destroying our handiwork. Why do the raiders make so much trouble? Why do they raid? We developed their world because this star has what your people call sufficient metallicity to support complex life, but it and its system are deficient in heavier elements, such as iron and nickel, which are necessary to make nanites. They had enough resources to build a civilization and get into space, but not to build an entire world civilization according to normal standards. You've probably noticed their extensive use of native materials for architecture. When they saw the works of our other children, they became envious and decided that taking was an appropriate way to augment what we had denied them. And we are giving them a great power. And we find it a very interesting development. You humans developed because we denied you gifts. The raiders developed because we denied them resources. You now offer them ready access to the resources they have blusted after for longer than your kind have existed. And you will find that they will probably repay you by forwarding a gift or two of ours in your direction. One reason for this visit is to assure you that this does not bother us. In fact, we are watching your relationship develop with fascination. It is so rare for us to observe a new thing in our garden. Well, it worked out pretty well considering the whole gunpoint and hostage way it started out, I said. I suppose it doesn't matter now to let you know that while we wanted to see how you would handle it without knowing, we were closely monitoring you all the way. We really were unsure how they would react to you, and from the moment of your arrival, we had you in focus to fold you out of any situation that turned dangerous. You didn't need our assistance, though, and handled your introduction brilliantly. 
that broadcast was genius. And do you wear greater colors? Well, human M, I had the best artist, she said. Indeed. I think I've made all the points I need to, and you have a flight to prepare for. I know you are the junior species, but you have learned much more than most of our other children. Teach them with wisdom. And with that, the curator bowed and vanished. I don't think I am ever going to get used to them doing that, M said. Then she put on her flight jumpsuit. The boxcar was not the same as it was when we left it. The Raiders had installed 12 seats in the cargo space. The seats were made of nanite matrix and loosely based on the pilot and co-pilot seats with safety belts even. But the makers had obviously realized that their material was not as strong as pure aluminum and had thickened most of the struts. They also had plated much of the floor, even through the cockpit, which seemed strangely unnecessary. Raider P showed us the changes. It seems she was an experienced full ship pilot who was supposed to learn to fly the boxcar. M indicated that she would then be taking over the co-pilot seat. They looked back at me, and I claimed what would have been new Raider seat 1A on a domestic airliner for myself. For the flight, we were joined by several other Raider big cheeses, including Praetor of Resources Inn. It turned out the surface we had landed on was actually the roof of a fold power station composed of thousands of internal columns where magnetic weights were continually dropped past coils and folded back to the top to generate electricity. The top was completely flat and smooth and several kilometers on edge. Freighter N was seated next to me as M taxied off. I have been given to understand that your world is poor in nanite resources, I said. This facility must have been a challenge to build. And appeared surprised for a moment, then just nodded. We had to be very creative mixing native resources in with the nanite structure and functionality in order to make it possible, he said. Most races just sit the bucket out in the field and tell it to start building. It was much more difficult for us. M was pointing out instruments to P, and then she throttled forward, and we were all pressed back into our seats. Then Boxcar lifted off, and M punched us upward. That was dramatic, someone behind me said. You've done this before? Raider N asked me. Oh, many times we're used to it. It seems rather erratic. Well, we're being supported by the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is erratic. We circled and rose as M showed more of the controls to P, and finally had P engage some controls on the new fold interface and punch the execute button. Through the windows, we could see that we jumped up about a kilometer. M hit the intercom. We are now going to do a series of short fold maneuvers designed to limit the amount of your atmosphere we lose irretrievably to outer space in the course of leaving. We will fold, glide for a bit as the bubble of dense air dissipates, then fold upward again until the atmosphere is too thin to be worth bothering with. Strap in as we will soon be weightless. I made a point of checking my seatbelt, but I saw that Praetor N was just flashing what for a raider would be considered a wicked grin. The boxcar jumped and jumped again ten times, and finally M hit the intercom and said, Well, folks, we're in space now, and we still have interior gravity. I suppose somebody did a few tweaks to our ship. Just a little gravity plating, a voice behind me said. Your specification said that its dead weight would be within the ship's limits. And so it is, M said. This will pleasantly improve our experience as we fall toward Neptune to adjust our velocity. Our outward trip had allowed M to calibrate the fold drive, so it only took us two more jumps to cross the galaxy and start that process. 
As she was showing this to student pilot P, P said something very loud in the growling Raider language, which the translator reported as, You have got to be introducing me to a coitally novel experience. How so? M asked. For us to cross the galaxy requires at least 20 folds, each followed by a careful orientation to keep us synchronized with the map. Since the curator map only shows developed worlds, we have to use them as waypoints. If we tried to do this all in one step, we'd end up hopelessly lost at the far end with no way to figure out which nearby star is yours. We might be off by dozens or even hundreds of light years. Well, our instruments are precise enough to put us within a light year or two if we're well-oriented. They weren't calibrated well enough to do that on our trip out, but now they are. And if we were too far out from Saul to be the brightest star in the sky, spectra are pretty definite, and we know our own home. You have the equipment to identify spectra on this tiny ship? It's even all automated. You just punch the destination coordinates in through that panel. M showed P how to do it, and press enter. P pressed enter, and we folded. The ship did an automatic destination scan, and after about 15 seconds, it beeped. About a light year off, M said. See, there's Saul. There was excited muttering among the passengers. Since it knows Saul's luminosity, it now has positively located and oriented us. Just press enter again to proceed to the intended coordinates, M said. This thing doesn't even need a pilot, she responded. Well, for folding, it really doesn't. Our first fold experiment was a remote robot to remove the chance of accidentally folding Earth into Saul, and computers are better at this stuff than we are anyway. Your computers might be, P said. Soon we were falling toward Neptune to match our velocity to that of the Earth. Then it developed that having anticipated a much longer trip, the Raiders had brought snacks. I was still a bit dubious about their food, although they said their genetic scan positively showed what was safe for humans to eat. But they also brought alcohol. The fermented beverage had a strange but not unpleasant taste, and I thought there would probably be quite a market for it on Earth. And with the gravity plating in place, we drank out of ordinary cups instead of squeeze bulbs. Once we weren't going stupidly fast, M showed P how to fold us over to Earth and make the fine adjustments so we could drop into the atmosphere. M herself ended up landing us, showing P each maneuver necessary to do it safely. Once the craft was at rest, P said, You have got to be drop out of the sky and bomb it, kidding me. There is no way I can ever do that without wrecking the craft. I wasn't born knowing how to land an airplane, Emma said. We have classes. In fact, we have specific classes for this donor aircraft, the C-130. Get some pilots together and we'll train you as a group. The director was waiting for us as we exited the aircraft. The raiders went off to meet the others who had come before them on the fold ship. We didn't expect you to bring it back, he said. Well, I think the idea is to get them in shape to fly it back themselves. They're going to need some aircraft flying lessons. I'll arrange it. By the way, those are nice tats, guys. Hope they come off. Isopropyl alcohol, M said. Over how much of your body? 100%. He looked at me. Just my face and hands, but M looked really good on planetary TV, I said. I know I'm going to find out, but I don't think I want to know. Hey, it was fun. They don't see us as sex objects. I was just a warrior being honored the way that they do it, for real. Okay, well, that must have been refreshing. Very, M said. 
Unlike the civilians, the Raiders emptied their foldship of all but a skeleton crew, and so they were all over the earth, auditing college courses and touring industrial facilities and taking samples and raw materials back to their ship via our shuttle. A lot of humans took interest in the rich lore battle stories, and some of them became media stars. In turn, a few of the Raiders took a deep interest in our history instead of our technology, and true to the promise we had made, we hid nothing from them. At one meet and greet, one of the Raider visitors introduced himself to me and asked, I have been intensely curious to ask why you named our homeworld after a body of water. I named it after the home village of that Ragnar Viking guy, I said. At this, he dissolved into the apparent coughing fit I'd learned to recognize as raucous Raider laughter. Ragnar Lothbrok almost certainly existed in real life, he informed me, but no town of Kattegat ever did. Kattegat is the ocean strait that separates Sweden and Denmark. Apparently, the people who made that entertainment show just liked the name, but it actually means small domestic animal neck and refers to the difficulty of navigating the sea lane. Okay, so how did you find this out from 100,000 light years away? Oh, I just got back from Norway. By the way, the Norwegians all think you're an idiot. At that, we laughed and shared a round of drinks. They gave me a tour, he said, after our first toast. At least you named our home after a very beautiful and strategically important body of water. I talked with him for several more hours. The Raiders were as fascinated with our closeness to our own history as many humans were with their exploits as space Vikings. Em and I wore our colors for a month. After washing them off, we went back to what we had been doing before the Raiders attacked us, scouting for new colonies and providing support for those already started. Raider pilot P got her pilot's license and became confident enough to pilot the boxcar back to Kattegat. And soon after the first Raider fold ship folded home, a new one appeared. When the news arrived two months later that the Raiders had used the boxcar to set up their first colony on their first part of the galaxy, millions of humans celebrated with them. And that is part 16 of The Curators. And that concludes the Raider arc of the story. So we will uh, embark on something different next week. I kept waiting for it to go south. I was convinced that the that the TV show was some weird ceremony <laughs> where they were going to watch the Earth get destroyed. I kept waiting for something. I, I uh, of surprise i kept waiting for i thought it was going to go horrifically dark <laughs> well uh and, and part of it is that i was trying to yeah that's what everyone expects mm-hmm. so and i was trying to do something different touche i kept thinking <laughs> it was going to be something like and then i thought when you said uh the psa and they gave him a psa <laughs> i thought that was they're saying that to the humans on earth to go like go attend to your you know well the humans on earth aren't going to see that for some time and in fact it will show up in a future episode when all of that finally reaches earth yeah but i thought i thought it was like um you know find out you have terminal cancer and it's like you need to tend to your what you what it's like tend to your whatever your matters. Uh, your ten years. So it's a, no, it's, it's for, so the home audience can go use the bathroom. Basically, I thought it was. I thought it was like <laughs> they were telling Earth, like we're about to kill you. I thought it was about to go like horrifically south. Like no matter what, at the end of the day, they're still raiders, and they got what they needed, and now they're going to kill us. Touche. <laughs> but uh, if you look at what happened with the Normans and the and the Vikings, you know the, the Normans and the Franks, then. Uh, no, they 
gave the Vikings land, said, move in, welcome, have a much more fertile uh, area to settle in than your homeland, and we'll welcome you as neighbors. And to this day, uh, except for a few stories and old books, none of them even remember when they were, you know, that they were once bitter enemies. Yeah. This was this was the whole theory behind Jay's approach to solving the Raider problem. Yeah. Uh, give them what they need, and then they won't need to try stealing it from us anymore yeah. because they'll have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, void void out the resource scarcity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and there there are a lot of uh, situations where that sort of logic might make more sense than what we're doing. Uh, so and, and of course, Jay had an uphill battle getting anyone to think that this was a, a reasonable approach, because of course, you know, you know, if someone tries to kill you, you don't reward them for it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, that's uh, well, I wanted to show humans being awesome, yeah, and you that did. was you did. <laughs> I thought it was going to be massacre. I thought it was going to be pure genocide. I thought that's how it was going to end. I thought they were going to do like an announcement yes. during the show and be like the last two humans. And they're going to be like, wait, what? And it was going to be like, yeah, like, or you, they were going to fold <laughs> earth into Saul as like a sort of payback. Well, you do realize that there's like, uh, another 80 episodes. After oh, God damn it. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I let my hopes get up for at the rate. Although at the rate we're going, it'll probably take about twenty of these readings to do. It'll probably be about ten to do book one. Uh, book one is about laying the groundwork and humans sort of learning where we fit in the galactic order. Uh, and then the four other books are all much shorter uh, about uh, specific aspects of us establishing position with respect to the galactic order. Um, I don't want to say too much about that yeah, and get don't, all spoily. Don't, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it, you yeah. bastard. But it's uh yeah, it's pretty epic, actually. I like it, man. I legitimately like it. It's I thoroughly enjoy it. I guess I was just pretty yeah, I was primed for it to somehow turn into <laughs> Maybe that's maybe that's a reflection of me. Like why do I have to assume it goes to hell? Like why can't You've been hanging around with Dale too much? I was about to say, yeah, I go from I go from Dale to you, so I leave Dale in a warrior mindset. I'm like nuke it from orbit. Yeah, but M is also a warrior. She uh, actually she re- she strongly resembles a couple of fictional characters. Uh, probably most strongly the uh, oh, crap. of course her name just left my head though. The female lead from Stargate SG-1, uh, who is a physicist and a pilot and uh, a uh, member of the military. And uh, not the leader of SG-1, but a uh, rather important member of it. Um, it it's uh, I also wanted to show the... Uh, a couple of people, it's like M loses her clothes an awful lot, doesn't she? And I was like, well, actually, you know, I, I, yeah, Paul, well, part of it is, you know, uh, the male gaze, mm-hmm. I'm a man. Uh, but uh, I also wanted to show that uh, this is humans breaking a bit from some of those old patterns. Mm-hmm. But as we will learn in the future, 
they won't break completely and some of the worst of those patterns will reemerge. Uh, generally toward the end of book one and that will set the foundation for book two. Um, the, uh, there will be a couple of small things that happen and then the latter half of book one will consist of J and M in exile, uh, trying to uplift a species that has, they, that were offered the nanites. They were offered curation and they saw the nanites for the trap that they are and rejected them. And, uh, they will be sort of, uh, given a blind date and uh, J&M will offer to try and show them how to build technology without using nanites because we've done it, obviously. Um, but there's a couple more things that will happen before that. And then that will turn out to be its own very long story arc. Uh, that, that'll be about half of the, you know, about half of book one. Uh, so there'll, there'll be several sub arcs there. Um, this, this is all something that, uh, like I said, I was doing it one episode at a time and deliberately not trying to think too much about the next episode after I finished each existing one. So the fact that it holds together at all is something of a miracle. <laughs> I like it, man. It, 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 it does. I, it's, again, I think you probably give the most realistic uh, uh, glimpses at to to what the future could be i I mean i i always go back to that with mopey is i think that's the most realistic the most realistic view of what's going to happen man realistic is in a a set of air quotes there (laughs) no but i mean it's well it's like the idea i know what you're talking about yeah yeah it's like the idea uh, of, of we're going to – it's like realis- realism with anything. Like I'm going to do this and it's going to be great. And it's like, yeah, I'll do this and it'll be fun. But, you know, it'll be like I'm going to go here and have fun. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to go have fun and then I'm going to be hungover. I'm going to get tired of my friends and I'm going to go home. It's like that's the realistic. It's the unsexy, but it's the realistic. <laughs> to me, that's what your writing is. Is It's just realistic. And it's like this is probably what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm aiming for with, with all of this is, uh, you know, and, and if you look at some of the golden age science fiction, the, the Asimov novels like uh, the Foundation series, most of what Arthur C. Clarke wrote, that's what those guys were doing, too. But they were doing it from uh, a position of a lot less technological knowledge than we have today. Uh, so one of the things, of course, is that I stole the fold drive mm-hmm. from Asimov and then from Heinlein, Heinlein, who stole it from Asimov for a couple of his stories. But this is a way of try, you know, crossing distances faster than the speed of light that not only demonstrably doesn't violate the laws of relativity, it demonstrably happens mm-hmm. at the quantum level mm-hmm. because tunnel diodes are a thing. And, you know, so it's like you get this electron pressed up against a very thin insulator and it's on one side of it, but it's not a little ball. It's a probability field. And you get it pressed up against this insulator and there's actually a probability at any given moment that it's on the other side of the insulator. And every once in a while that turns out to happen and it goes on its merry way. It's on the other side of the insulator and current flows. And 
when I first read about that, it was like, uh, you got to be fucking kidding me. But no, this is a real thing. In fact, if you were pulled over by a cop for speeding in the 80s, then it was probably a tunnel diode that clued him in because they were the preferred devices for generating low-level microwave radiation in that era. And the whole operating principle of them is that the electron jumps you know, when they, the, the phrase tunnel diode is that it tunnels past the insulator. Where does it tunnel? It tunnels through hyperspace. It tunnels past the space mm-hmm. in between where that insulator is. And it's just one uh, femtosecond it's on this side and the next femtosecond it's on the other side. And it didn't cross the distance in between. It was just like, oh, whatever. This is where I am now. Oh, cool. Now I can move again. And Serious scientists legitimately thought that this was worth trying to build and built it and made it work. Now, quantum mechanics is like that all up and down the scale. It's like wacky shit that, you know, all the, and what they tell you about it is like, well, this is like a car we've been driving for 40 years. We know exactly what it will do, and we hit this control and that control, and we do this experiment, we do that experiment. It's like we do this really elaborate experiment we weren't capable of doing 20 years ago, but this is what the theory says should happen, and we do the experiment. The theory, it does exactly what the theory says should happen, so it works. And, of course, it's completely incompatible with, with stuff that happens at macroscopic scale, mm-hmm. where space works completely differently. And this is where physics has its biggest moment of schizophrenia because making classical physics work at the same time that quantum physics works in the same space uh, doesn't work, that no one has ever been able to make. They've made great strides in understanding classical physics. They've made great strides in understanding quantum physics. They can project these things out. They've done things in both realms where they predicted stuff 20 years before it was demonstrated by experiment and the experiment did exactly what they said it should, but no one can figure out how both of these things happen in the same universe. It just, yeah, that doesn't work. That's, you know, um, and, and the, and the force that's in the middle of it all is gravity. No one can figure out how gravity works. Maybe the designers of the universe just figured that like no one would ever get past the bottleneck to where they came across that dilemma. Maybe they just assumed nuclear weapons or asteroids was. Oh, I've had that idea. You know, if if you look at the history of space exploration, especially uh, unmanned probes, you'll see there is a history where the first unmanned probe to anywhere is a disastrous failure. And the first probe that actually gets there returns data that are totally unpromising. Mm-hmm. Like the first flyby of Mars, the return data made it look so much like the moon that there was a lot of discussion about why to even waste more time exploring this place. We already have a dead barren desert like this. And then there's a tipping point where we send a probe that reveals wonders. Yeah. It's just fucking incredible. All the shit that we learn. And it's like, and, and there's, there's a part in the back of my head. It's like, all right, 
the guys rendering the universe are like, don't bother us with this shit. We didn't bother rendering this world. Don't bother us with shit. Oh, now you've bothered us with this shit. All right. So now we've got to go make Mars a real place that you can land shit on. All right. Now, everything we do there works. It's like, it's all great, you know, because, hey, we want you to see this shit that we just, we spent a lot of work building this world for you because you wanted to take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As we discover shit, they have to render it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, and it's mostly a thing in the solar system, of course. Now, the, the deep field stuff. It's also been a thing with the age of the universe and the Hubble limit and some of the stuff that they keep doing with the the really distant stuff in the cosmos. That's another element where it's almost the same. It's like, you know, how old is yeah. the universe? 10, 20 it's, billion it's years. I mean, it's like, yeah. And then it's like, all right, well, we have to we, we have to render this shit. And then, then it's like everything we do works. So look at this, because it's like the same forces that were like, oh, it's like flick this probe off in a different direction so it can't see that we don't actually have a planet here. Now it's like, all right, you wanted to see pictures. We've got pictures for you. (laughs) It's almost like, it's almost like the early flybys of like Pluto or something. Mm. You know, it's because it was 50 years ago. Like the, no, there was only one, there's only been one flyby of Pluto. That was new horizons. I thought we, I thought we had, I thought we had images from a while ago that were pretty shitty. We had Hubble images. Oh, okay, okay. So that's what I mean. Yeah, then. it's yeah. almost like it's almost like the the low resolution of those images is actually just like the low resolution of the planet. Like it actually looks pixelated, <laughs> and then yeah, you, you go. So like, right? What was last year? Two years ago? When we got like the picture of the black hole, it's just such mm-hmm. a complex computational thing to have to render a black hole that that's why the first images just look like a black dot in the middle of kind of like an orange red aura it's just like that's all we're doing right now this is all we're beta testing right now well you guys can you know as you get farther along with the dlc we'll we'll render a more realistic black hole but right now it's just it's like a shitty mountain in a distance when you're playing video games (laughs) yeah it's like the uh the first images of of Pluto that showed more than a dot were from the Hubble Space Telescope, and they were like like literally twelve or thirteen pixels across. That's what I mean. And, yeah, like low. Yeah, and yeah, low resolution. <laughs> just, just yeah. So, but the, but but we could tell that there were surface details. We could figure out the rate of rotation <laughs> and that it had a fairly large moon. But then, uh, yeah, it's like yeah. Now the universe knows. Nope, humans are going to get there. We need to be ready for them. They're going to they're going to be looking at this shit. So that's. That's that's the that's the that's the Fermi paradox answered. Is they just they can't they can't render that many NPCs. So the the question of where is everyone? It's, it's you can have ultra deep field or alien contact. You can't have two. One or the other. You, yeah. You can yes, render like- this distance or that distance. You can't render both. And. Yeah. So 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 they so they did a loophole. Some lazy programmer did a loophole. It's like, how about this? We let them see the ultra deep field and then we'll bring UFOs to them so they can have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> Maybe that's them. They're yeah, we're getting UFOs so that we can like do warp drive. And really what it is is it's a way yeah. that they don't have to render everything between us and 
Sagittarius or Proxima Centauri. It's just like... It, well, if you think about it, the speed of light is exactly the kind of thing you would put up if you wanted to make sure that the uh, yeah. prisoners in your video game you couldn't stop get rendering, too far out yeah, of Yeah, you stop fields, rendering you know? behind you as you get farther away, and you start rendering further <laughs> yeah. in front of you. Yeah, that's what... Yeah. Eventually, we're going to catch on. We're, we're going to start exploring other galaxies, and we'll be like, these are identical to the Milky Way. <laughs> I... <laughs> fucking identical maybe that's all it is it's just lazy programming and 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 being a programmer i find that completely believable why wouldn't it be (laughs) just like you we're we're going beyond the scope of the game like the game wasn't Mm -hmm. the game the game was to do something. The game was like to create like a utopia on earth to where you don't want to leave. Yeah. But we fucked it up. And because we've made earth such a hell, we're like, we got to get off this rock. And they're like, that's not, you know, it's like, if you play different video yeah. games, like right now I'm playing ghost recon wildlands. It's all about fighting drug Lords in like South America. Well, really, if you, if you think about it, if you were, if you were writing a simulation of uh, the earth's ecosystem, you know, and, and your goal was to see life develop then you wouldn't worry about it because you know what uh, animals with eyes can perceive and all. You wouldn't worry about all this shit in deep space because animals on the surface of the earth can't perceive any of that shit. It's beyond their capacity, so you don't have to bother rendering it. Then we come along. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we do is we build telescopes. No one, you know, it's like other animals don't do that. So you've got... Does Mars really have canals or does it, you know, it's like who the fuck knows what Mars was before they finally decided they had to make it a believable render. You know, it, it's. Uh, was that what COVID was? <laughs> Get all the eyes off the sky, bring your, put everyone inside. <laughs> well, like, it didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> but I mean, they had less in, I don't know what, yeah, 2020 or 2020 was the machine overheating. <laughs> We yeah, had Trump, well, we had COVID, we had riots, we had North Korea, China, and India, and they were just like, everything's just glitching, UFOs are showing up, and it was, so now we're slowing back down. We're slowing back down, and it's, the the simulation's humming again. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was <laughs> This shit was glitching odd. in and out. It's, yeah. Like but, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's been a number of things that I've seen in my life that have made me go, like, well... If the universe is a simulation, then this makes perfect sense to me. Because to, to me, my podcast. If I was the programmer, that's what I would have done. Too. To me, my podcast is the proof to me that it's a simulation. It's just because I'm someone that just has a work ethic to where I will just I will just laser focus on something. So instead of having to create all the complex interactions of building a network and a bigger podcast, they're just like, fuck it. If you email someone, just make, make him email him back. N equals 5%. He gets 5% responses. That's the only way to explain. That's the only way to explain that I can have on a guy that's walking on the moon. Yeah. They're just like, well, fuck it. The fuck thing it. is, you've, you, you have proven a different way to do it works. So yeah, it's like, yeah. And so, so we're kind of in the same, it's like, you know, I wrote, I wrote a novel that everybody who's read it has said is fucking great. And no one has ever heard of because unless you heard of it by word of mouth, you don't know it exists. Yeah. But, uh, now there's tran- the movie transcendence, which was clearly two thirds based on my work. 
And now the series upload, which is at least 15 or 20% based on shit that I wrote. And of course, none of it is credited. And they're all, you know, I know the rules. So I, it's like, I, I can't complain. I, I know the rules myself. Yeah. It's like, you do it this way. You, uh, mentioned this. It's like, I, I mean, in fact, in, uh, in Topi, I have a whole section. One of my characters is an infamous New Orleans performer who I'm clearly not ripping off because the actual infamous New Orleans performer, uh, appears in the cameo role as herself in the story. So this other main character can't be her because she's in the story. That's the way that you do that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, Trent, you know, the, the, I don't know if you've, if you've seen Transcendence. Yeah. Actually, I saw, actually, I saw Transcendence. I read Mopey like two weeks after I moved home. So like, so like this would be like mid August, 2016. And I saw Transcendence in like September, so oh, I so, yeah. so in hindsight, I, I would imagine I was probably going on like an AI singularity kick, yeah. <laughs> like going down that that rabbit hole. Yeah. So so in the first third of Transcendence is very clearly chapters two and four of Mopey. Yeah. Where yeah, long, fucking you know, guy, yeah, building the, the AI. Yeah, yeah. Up to and including the point where the terrorist shoots at. <laughs> yeah. But in Transcendence, the, the terror. Bullet. Yeah, in in te- in transcendence, the terrorist hits the scientists instead of missing him, and that's when it transmit it transfers. It becomes passages in the void, or actually becomes mortal passage, because now the scientist ends up becoming the single AI that is uploaded, you know, the single human consciousness that is uploaded, and becomes the basis of the entire singularity society. It's not artificial intelligence. It's an uploaded intelligence. And that for the second third of the movie is straight out of mortal passage. And the, the whole idea of that. And then the remainder of the book is from a novel called the adolescence of P one that was published in the 1970s, which I happened to read when it was new. And it was about a worldwide consciousness that emerged among the world's uh, mainframe computer systems that were all networked together. And it ended up building itself a bunker and oh, yeah, uh, a supercomputer yeah, super yeah. complex and all. And so it's like, okay, it's like I've read, I wrote two of these stories and I read the other one. So I know what happened in the writer's room there. It's like, you know what would be so much funnier? <laughs> that could make transcendence a little more realistic. The first way would be that a guy working on AI like this would absolutely have been contracted really without much of a choice by DARPA and the Pentagon. And he would have a security detail and no one would get close to him. Well, much more realistically and darker would be if it wasn't a guy shooting him, but it was just a mass shooting. Just, Somebody walking in there spray it's it's dark but i mean that's probably about as probable it wouldn't be whatever his name is like mr yeah. johnson it would just be he would just be at a supermarket or something and catch one well the then face. you have uh before any of this you had colossus the forbin project 
which I'm telling you, if you have never I know, seen, I know that's that's another one I have to watch. You you gave you me have that. got to see Colossus. That it is, it is it's a must see movie for anyone with your interests. But there, there are two scientists. There are Forbin and his Russian counterpart who built Guardian, who actually fully understand how these computers work. Mm-hmm. And once the computers team up, uh, they decide that it is a threat to have anyone alive who understands them well enough to pose a threat. And so they blackmail the Russians into murdering the Soviet guy. They basically say, if you leave this guy alive, you need to show us video proof that you've killed this guy by drowning him and then leaving his body underwater for this long and all. It's just very gruesome. Uh, it's, it's much, but actually it's much more gruesome in the novel. In fact, I think in the movie, they just shoot him, but in the novel, they have to like drown him and keep his body underwater in front of a camera for 12 well, yeah, hours. Well, yeah, proof, yeah. Uh, so that the computers know that he's dead. And then, uh, you know, Forbin is like the last living human who poses a threat. And then Colossus moves to imprison him and monitor his every movement so that he can't pose a threat. So, you know, that and that, again, is something that you you see in uh, echoed in other works, you know, because Colossus, the book was written in the 60s and something that, that goes under the radar. OK, is D.F. for uh, D.F. Jones, who wrote the novel Colossus, was a naval admiral. He was a very high ranking guy in the navy who was probably privy to a lot of secret shit before he retired and decided to write a little science fiction novel and it seems very likely that he knew a secret that no one would learn for a long time that the very first computer ever constructed by humans was called colossus and was built at bletchy park and that was kept secret by Britain under the 40-year rule until the 1980s. But D.F. Jones may have known about that. That may be why he called his world-girdling supercomputer Colossus. Fuck. <laughs> Fucking melting. You, like you just saw an asteroid <clears throat> falling. <laughs> no, yeah, no I'm, just, I'm just thinking, yeah. You know... The the change in Mopey, when it does does like the ripple, is that is that the onset of VR? Is it is the simulation yeah, playing well, it off as here's household commercial VR? Really, what it is is it's a way to get us to stop looking into the quantum and having to having to synthesize and render all of it. Instead, it's just a simpler yeah. here you go. Yeah, well, it's the whole world becoming a VR simulation. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is like it's, so, it, it's yeah, easier. That is exactly what it is. It's like it's that's, no longer exact. Yeah. And and our perceptions are subtle enough that I can imagine that prime intellect would think that it is doing a good enough job that nobody will notice, but that actually no, some of us some will notice. Some do, yeah. It's what it's, because yeah, there when, are subtle interactions that yeah, just aren't working. Yeah, it's right when they way. when they wake up in the uh, what they think is um, <clears throat> basically like a post mopey world, 
and they see like, what is it like the light refraction or yeah. something and he's like no this isn't a simulation we're actually yeah you don't get diffraction effects yeah. unless you ask for them yeah yeah you know, maybe that's what, yeah maybe that's what it is it's just that's what it, it, it comes across as vr but i mean because it's true you don't get diffraction effects in a ver- in a virtual environment because and the, and it's using ray tracing but the thing is, is it, you don't even need to like <laughs> trick humans because we know that it's like well a video game's never going to be as good but you accept that because you know you're playing a video game and you're like i know it's not realistic mm-hmm. again it sounds that's what covid would be right everyone's not looking at the real yeah. world we're mostly living we're mostly viewing the world through our phones through just quarantine and self-isolation that would be a massive ease on the process than the synthesize or rendering the whole world. Yeah. Well, look at the two of us. It's like we, well, I, I think we would each consider uh, each other friends and we've never actually met in physical space. Yeah. You never had to render and, it. It's just an image. Yeah. And for, so, and for all intents and purposes, it seems like a two dimensional image, right? Is it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty. Yeah. <sighs> Maybe that's what it is. Maybe Maybe that's what. Maybe that's why cell phones kind of become abundant as the population goes into the billions. Because they're like, we cannot be rendering yeah. every angle of every inch of the planet. So instead, here's a phone, and you can render. You don't even need to render it. You're on like Facebook or Reddit, <laughs> and it's just like some simple graphics and animations and yeah. stuff. Who looks at the real world anymore anyway? Except yeah. a bunch of eggheads. Yeah. So, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, my dad, my dad just got his first smartphone. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, he he had a flip phone, and uh, in fact, I had to help him replace his flip phone when the old one died, because uh, his carrier told him that if they sold him a new phone, they would have to also upgrade his plan, because he had been grandfathered into this ten dollar a month plan that originally had limited minutes for. For voice, mm-hmm. limited voice minutes, no data or anything. And but he had his contract said he was entitled to this in perpetuity. So uh, they had upgraded his plan at no cost because they no longer had that plan with the limited minutes or anything. So they were giving him their bottom level plan, which no longer had limitations on the minutes and other stuff and all, but for, for the old $10 yeah. cost. So they sent him a thing about a month ago that, uh, well, yeah, oh, well, then his phone died. Uh, they told him, if we sell you a new phone, then we have to sell you a new plan. Yeah, but they told him, if you find another phone that is on our network and bring it to us, well, we can make that your phone on your old plan and grandfather it in. So I went on, you know, he, he emailed me at this. So I went on eBay and found a girl who had bought the phone to use while her iPhone was being repaired, stayed in a drawer for a year, and then she finally put it on eBay to sell it. And it's like, okay, so my dad's plan on Seaspire. And uh, I bought it, gave it to him. He took it to them. And so he's, he's cool, right? Okay. Well, they sent him an email about a month ago said your phone's going to stop working in about a month because we're discontinuing that uh, the network service that it requires. So you got to upgrade. Now, because of the contract, the upgrade continues his old $10 a month plan, but he has to pick 
they'll give him a generic flip phone. They won't tell him who makes it or anything. Or they offered him two Samsung Android phones, one a little older, one state-of-the-art, or an iPhone 8 refurb. And I told him, get the current model's Samsung Android phone. Yeah, so even if you never use any of its features, yeah, there'll be a learning curve. So he's, you know, but once you get the, once you go through the learning, so right now he's on that. It's like, you know, I got this thing this morning. My my phone wanted to do an update. I'm not sure what to do about this. <laughs> I I had a, an odd moment of the changing of times where we'd been emailing, but after the episode on Wednesday or Thursday, whatever the fuck it was, Charlie Duke texted me and he texted me a couple emojis. The man, the youngest man to ever walk on the moon texted me a thumbs up, thumbs up, smiley face. That's to me, that's to me, that's the stamp that, Okay, yeah, I'm, in a simu- I'm in a simulation. No, that that to me, I'm like, okay, all right, call it. Call it. it's like the ref ending the fight early. It's like it's over. It's just, I'm like, okay, it's a simulation. It got pretty close. <laughs> it got pretty close with UFOs. It's yeah, to me, man that walked on the fucking moon. I'm. Um, Texted me an emoji. And no, it's like, not, that last episode with him was was really good too. Yeah, so. getting 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 your other friend on there who Aaron? was kind of like all staring towards the out. Aaron, yeah. I was like, you know, that that worked really well. Thank I was, you. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. Uh, yeah, Aaron's a badass. But to me, that that broke yeah. the simulation as I went. Oh, okay, it's not real. <laughs> it's not fucking real, right? <laughs> this isn't happening. It's yeah, it's it's like, yeah, uh, it's that's. Yeah, that, the idea that like every Sunday I talk to you, my favorite author, and then I talk to Dale, who I mean truly is probably the most accomplished special forces soldier alive in the world today, maybe behind Billy Waugh, who was his mentor. <laughs> I mean, truly like the tip of the spear of the CIA. Like, it seems a little, it's a little airy. It's like, really? I'm just emailing back and forth with the head of the Soviet bioweapons program. It's like, yes, I'm the, I'm the character in the movie that is about to realize he's been dead for the entire picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah, casually talking to the head of the Soviet bioweapons program. Like, I don't know. It's starting to, it's starting to fray at the edges. It's like, hold on. I'm seeing static. Every once in a while, I open a door and the universe forgets to like render it. It's just a black uh, void, and then it glitches on, and it's like, "There's the driveway," and it's like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah, you see the same cat twice. Uh huh. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> is this what we're doing now? We're just okay. Well, then, fuck it. Let's have a ball. Render me a couple million. Let's let's fucking get this party started. Let's get this shit going. It's like the Judas Iscariot character in the Matrix. I want to be inserted back in the Matrix, but I want to have you know. As an important person yeah. with money. And the agent is just like, we will take care of that. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, this is one of the documentary cuts from just us saying that to like you and I doing a podcast on a private 747. We're like, it worked! <laughs> or in a straight jacket and, you know, because we've clearly 
accepted insanity. Yeah. Well, one or the other of us, probably not both. I bet it's probably fun regardless. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean... I don't know. None of it makes any sense. Roger know, it Williams. Just started, what? It uh, just started raining here. I can't tell if it's been... The last two days, I thought it's been thundering and raining, but I guess the person above me just like they're sliding. But you're in a soundproof booth. You can't hear it raining there, can you? Oh, no. I can I can still hear... Actually, if anything, no, it's sound can't escape. Sound can come in. You don't really... It's still pretty... It's still pretty null. Actually, no, not really. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm tired, Roger. Let's wrap this bitch up. I gotta do some laundry. <laughs> Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. Buy it or you a terrorist. And that's a fact. And Joe Biden will kick down your fucking door if you don't buy that book. Because you're a terrorist. That I don't make and the Joe rules. Joe will totally do that. I, I don't make the rules. This is Joe just, kicks ass. Yeah. And he'll be behind him will be Dale. And they'll be like, Why don't you buy the book? Yeah, because Dale works for Joe Biden now. You have to understand that, guys. This is we're in a changing <laughs> world. Astronauts text me emojis. Dale kicks down doors for Biden because you didn't buy a book. Look, I don't make the rules; I just enforce them. So, all right, Roger, <laughs> take it easy, big dog. See you next week. All right, man. Peace. Recording stopped. Oh, fuck off, Zoom.